I looked for death. I got base duty the first day I got out. One of the older guys came over to me. Hey, grab the uh, bolt cutters. And I'm like, we're gonna go on a raid, yes. Ride with me. We're going to go do a favor for the forensic service people. I had to cut somebody down off a bridge that was hung overnight. Go up there, there's a flatbed and the body flops on there. People are watching. There's a taco stand across the way. They're eating. I was horrified by what I was seeing. And I said, who can possibly be as evil and as horrible to do this to somebody? The older guy could see it in his eyes. And he said, Ed, you're, you're stupid. They were kind to him. I was like, what? What do you mean they're kind to him? At least his family has a body to cry over and bury. This is kindness. The body is a gift. I realized how fucked of a place that I was in, where a mutilated, tortured body hung from a bridge was kindness. I could still smell it. And I remember the realization that I was seeking freedom and I found myself in hell. I apparently don't know when to drink water. I forget to, to eat. Oh, yeah. I uh, forget that uh, cold is real. We got to strengthen your mind-body connection, my boy. Well, it's funny what happens to your mind and body when you go through horrible shit. You know, yeah. They kind of let me go into my happy place, and that means like, my ghost is gone. Usually. Yeah, disassociation. Yeah, Now Trauma. we're talking. Yeah, that, that feels good, right? Trauma and all that <laughs> shit, you know? But now, you know, I, I'm trying to slowly, my, my, my therapist, I've been through two years of therapy. My therapist says, oh, your ghost is back into the machine a little bit. You yeah. Know, you, need, you need a little bit of that. You, you know? got to have the ghost in the machine. Just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. two years of therapy. Yeah. Has it been good? Amazing. Really? You, you're enjoying it? Uh, I was a horrible drunk three years ago and i don't drink anymore yeah uh yeah and the uh, alcohol offered a little bit of disconnection that's insane i i was drunk every third day wow <laughs> and then feeling terrible the next day yeah which is at least feeling something wow that's heavy uh, that's heavy yeah. We can get into all of this. You have a fascinating life working in counter-narcotics, state police in Tijuana, everything. But I just want to start all the way at the very beginning. Sure. You grew up in Tijuana. Yeah. yeah. Born, born there. Born there. Uh, so Tijuana is weird. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a city of immigrants. Like uh, We have people from all over, uh, basically, that, that are trying to make it to the U.S. And some of them don't. Or some of them do make it to the U.S., but they make a mistake of some sort, and they, and they get kicked back kicked out so they end up in Tijuana mm -hmm. it's like a for some it's a purgatory but for others it's like a home and right. an opportunity uh when I was growing up they would ask like who's from Tijuana you know and it was rare for people to raise their hands but I was born in Tijuana mm. I was born in downtown Tijuana on 7th street at the uh Hospital de Leon uh on the 21st of August in 1982 Okay. And a lot of people I feel like don't realize, at least I didn't realize, Tijuana is a city in Mexico, but it's also kind of a city in America. Yeah, it is, it is so close to the border, and the nature of that city in San Diego is there's a lot of, you know, commerce and traffic going back and forth blood, constantly. And also blood and families. Uh, people in marrying an American and then, uh, then spending Christmases in Tijuana instead mm -hmm. of the U.S. because Christmases and holidays are always better in Mexico, right? The parties go on for days. Mm -hmm. 
the cops won't show up if you have a mariachi band playing at five in the morning at your house. Unless they do, they'll probably join in. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? They'll uh, show up if you're not playing mariachi. Yeah. They're like, what it's are you guys a, doing? It's a dangerous freedom, but it's a freedom there. And I think a lot of Americans that go down to Baja and experience that can get to see that. It is insanely interconnected, mm -hmm. interconnected, like even right now more so because there's a lot of Americans living down there. We have this joke that we call Tijuana, San Diego South now, you know, mm -hmm. but it is very interconnected. Our TV channels when I was growing up, uh, I had one Spanish channel and four English channels growing up. So a lot of my English comes from watching Mr. Rogers on KPBS growing up. Oh, uh, wow. uh, or watching Sesame Street growing up and learning how to comprehend English, maybe not talk, speak it as well as I do now, but at least most of the people from Tijuana that grew up in, the, in, in, in that time would watch American TV, and we were very Americanized, more so than other parts of the country yeah, because we a, had that access. It's an extremely transient city. Yeah. 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 And what did your parents do? My dad ran, ran, a, ran a business for I mean, his whole life. He's kind of retired now. Uh, electrical light post uh, transformer boxes like mm -hmm. a, like a, that's that was his the family business basically the uh, electrical engineering stuff that's cool um, and uh, he is part of like his my whole family is kind of that you know they're all electrical engineers that's that the industry that they go into most of my cousins are that I'm the only weirdo <laughs> and then what did your mom do my mom was a nurse growing up so she was you know, she, she was a badass of the family. You know? Yeah. My dad is cool and he's great. He's amazing. But my mom was like the ninja. What, kind of, what kind of nursing did she do? Uh, she worked at a hospital for a long while. And uh, after that, you know, she, she had some kids with my dad, had me. You know, things changed. So she had to stay at home. But she, she always kept that. Like uh, in Tijuana and Mexico, in general, people don't go to the doctor ever. Mm -hmm. And if you know a nurse or if you know somebody, you'll go to their house, you know? So we got a lot of knocks at night yeah. on the door uh, from people that, hey, do you, can your mom inject me? Sure. Then my mom would go. I would hold the flashlight for her for some stuff that she would do to the people like, hey, I don't want to take my stitches out because I can't afford the hospital. So I would go with my mom and do some of that stuff around the community. Oh, wow. That's what I think that's who influenced me the most as far as that. That whole being somebody that knows new stuff that could be useful. To yeah, the that that example of benevolence of like, yeah. hey, this person knows things that everyone needs that helps everyone. Yeah, and people are coming to them frequently and is always willing to give up of themselves to help the group. Yeah, so she taught me the power of responsibility. Like, hey, you know something? Yeah, well, it means now that you have to use it for others. Yeah, you I can't think. keep it. No, it's not. It's not for you. So you have to. I, rem I just the fact that everybody knew her. And even to this day, she's been gone for almost eight years now. And to this day, you know, people ask me like, hey, you're, you're, you're Elvia's kid. Like, yeah, I'm Elvia's kid. You know, I've done a lot of shit myself, but I'm still in my, at least in, in the, the place where I grew up, I'm still her, her, her son. Oh, that's you know? really cool. And obviously the place you were living, Tijuana at the time specifically was very violent. So a lot of like dangerous activity happening in different parts of TJ. Growing up, like I, again, I was born in the 80s, and it was not that bad. Oh, really? Not that bad. I, I got to see Tijuana when it was still border town, you know, known for its rowdy nightlife, but mostly for Americans. But if you lived in Tijuana, you would enjoy walking, and there was not, not shady stuff would happen, but not, not that in the open. But cartel activity wasn't, didn't not, take over. No, no, not in the 80s. Uh, 
it, like mid '90s, you started seeing it now in the streets. Uh, you started seeing a, a, a cartel in the form of the Ariano Felix cartel, which was a family of cartel people that basically started coming up in power in Tijuana. They were part of a federation of other cartels that are across the country, but they had access to one of the largest drug markets on the planet by being in control of the Tijuana border. So, of course. And that gave them insane amounts of power. Um, I, I got to see the growth of that in, in my hometown. Mm -hmm. um, I saw it first through my, my brother. Uh, my brother, my middle brother, Eric, um, who passed away when I was young. Um, he was a Chalino Sanchez fan. You know? What is Chalino Sanchez? Chalino Sanchez is a legend in the Mexican folk music. Uh, uh, cor corridos. Corridos. He was, he's the, one, of the, he was one of the best, basically. He was a gangster uh, from Sinaloa who killed the rapist of his sister and somehow got away with that. Left to Tijuana, became a smuggler, then went to the U.S., got imprisoned, and started writing corridos for people inside of prison. Oh, wow. And he just became a legend. At one of his, uh, I think it was in Coachella, he was playing live and a dude pulled a gun in the crowd and Chalino shot back. From the stage. From the stage in the U.S. as a Mexican national. And yeah, somehow, yeah, yeah. and somehow didn't get into, he was like, oh, that was clearly self-defense, different times, yeah. different times. Now, I don't want to detour too much from your story with your brother, yeah. but just for any of the people listening, the, the gringos, yeah. uh, can you just explain briefly kind of what a corrido is and what it means to the Mexican uh, people? If, if, if people are into gangster rap, yeah, gangster rap is basically people reporting on what's going on on the street and who, who the heroes are or the criminal heroes or the, you know, the Robin Hoods of society in mm -hmm. a way. It's the same thing. You listen to a corrido in Mexico, you're, you're, you're hearing a story of somebody doing something heroic or noble in an unnoble society or in a place that is a crime-ridden or, or, yeah. or, or, or within criminality. Not always. There's some other careers for people that are doing other things. Mm -hmm. The way Fernando kind of described it, I had uh, Fernando, Fernando Puente uh, recently, is awesome. But he was kind of describing it in that same way where like in America, gangster rap, you have uh, former criminals making music, whereas with uh, Mexican corridos, you have musicians making music about yeah. criminals and people within crime families. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, like I just always assumed anytime I saw like a young Mexican dude riding down the street, like in a low ride or some shit, and he's playing like mariachi music yeah. as a white guy, I'd be like, why is he listening to this old music? I thought it was like like Vicente Fernandez or some shit. I, I, I didn't understand what they were listening yeah. to. And he told me, he's like, no, that's like the newest, hottest underground shit. Yeah. That's yeah. like the equivalent of listening to Drake. Yeah. And I had no idea. I thought yeah. they were listening to like old, like 70s music. Uh, and uh, a lot of these groups that sing some of these things have uh, allegiances mm -hmm. to certain cartel groups. So right. right now we just saw Peso Pluma on, the, on, the, on, on MTV. And he has had his life threatened if he plays in Tijuana because he sings for the Sinaloa cartel. Mm -hmm. And Tijuana is in a war between the Sinaloa cartel and the new generation cartel. Mm -hmm. And they said, if you play here, we'll kill you. And that's the second time that's happened. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's, a, it's a very public and also very, you know, the youth gravitates towards that and the glorification and the kind of like augmentation of the cartel culture on one side but also the fact that they're singing about something that's really happening. Yeah. So in a way, 
a lot of people get their news and their awareness of what, what's happening through those songs. Mm. That's what corridos are. It just sounds so happy. You just listen yeah. to it, it's like. Well, I mean, most of them are singing about surviving death, you know? Yeah, but, <laughs> but the lyrics are like, it's like little Dirk. It's like, you yeah. listen to the lyrics, it's like, it's like, yo, this guy shot this guy and then he ran away and he, it's like, bro, this is crazy. A, a, a real, a true corrido isn't asked for, it's made. Mm -hmm. Like some people ask for them or they get right, paid they for it. They pay for it. I, yeah, I, I have one. Somebody wrote one about me. Mm -hmm. They listened to a bunch of my interviews, apparently, uh, and they made one. And it just blew my mind that somebody did that. But when you listen to it, it's not a glor. It's, it, it. None of them. None of them are glorifying crime or anything. There, it's like a lamentation of, a, of a, in a way when you listen to some of them. Like they wish it was better. They wish they could have done better. They wish it they could have been good, but they were pushed into a life, and that's and they're singing about it. Right. And when you listen to some of the narrative that some of these songs have, yes, there's a lot of boasting, but it comes from a place of sadness and insecurity mm. because as Mexicans we have that. You know, we're underdogs. So when somebody sings like a you'll hear some of the newer corridos where they're talking about, you know, expensive brands. Uh, these are kids that grew up barefoot in certain parts of Sinaloa, you know, and mm -hmm. they, they, they know poverty. They know losing everything. They know death more so than a lot of people. Uh, so when they sing about it and when they talk about it in these songs, you're, you're hearing something live and direct from a place where it's happening. Mm -hmm. A lot of the gangster rap here in the US, you know, gangster violence or gang violence of the nature that it was in the 90s and before that, that's, that's not, it's not the case anymore. So a lot of them are singing about things that they imagine to be true or, or stories from somebody else. And these kids are singing about things that are happening every day. Yeah. I mean, Peso Pluma is, under a death threat, like a true and active death threat. Yeah. And he's just sings, just sang on the, at the uh, MTV Video Music Awards. Yeah, this is one of the biggest Mexican artists ever, ever, yeah, and arguably ever. one of the biggest artists in the world right now. Yeah, yeah he's uh, he's achieved a level in popular culture that nobody of, uh, in his kind has ever done before. And what he represents is what's like uh, unique. He represents not only the youth right now in that culture, that that, that narco, uh, glam, glamorous narco uh, folk culture, because that's what it is, even though he dresses like he's from the future. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, he represents that. He represents a, a current state of mind and being for youth youth in Mexico. Now, people can say it's a negative or a positive. It, is, it exists and people need to pay attention to it and yeah. listen to it. There's nothing, there's a... Uh, I think the negativity aspect of it, yeah, it's glorifying a life. Mm -hmm. It is romanticizing people that aren't that romantic. Uh, it's it's uh, it's representing something that, you know, how many of those kids in the back of trucks with an AK-47 and a bunch of radios will make it to a point where they can afford a Louis Vuitton bag? Yeah. Or how, how many of them are going to even live to see 28, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, I understand why people worry about it. Like it's glorifying narco culture and stuff like that. But it's also, if, if you're not paying attention to it and hearing it, it's also providing a truth. Yeah, it's just discussing what the life is. Like people say this, this has been a debate in America for years, right? Relating to rap music. It's like, oh, they're glorifying gang violence. It's like, 
you could say that, but you could also look at it as, as, you know, they're just discussing what their daily life is, yeah. assuming that it is authentic. You know, there's obviously people from the suburbs that rap that yeah. it's not authentic. But if you're truly living in Compton in a gang-affiliated territory, like, and you're just talking about what your life is, yeah. is that glorification or are you just discussing, you know, Tuesday? Yeah. yeah. And is that wrong for someone to talk about? Yeah. Uh, for me, you know, uh, I grew up in the punk rock scene in Tijuana. Yeah. So I was averse to all of it. My my rebellion against music like that was cultural because uh, my again my brother was into Chalino Sanchez. Right. He would wear cinto uh, piteados, which are these absurdly expensive belts that are stitched with silver threading. You know, uh, he would wear the Stetson hats that are worth whom God knows how much. Uh, he had guns with silver grips and stuff like that. He was all about that culture. Um, He's your older brother? He was my middle brother. Um, how many siblings do you have? I have two. My okay. big brother, middle brother, and I'm the, I'm the accident. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he was in that culture. But I was a, when I was a kid, I would look at it as like, nah, that was not, not for me. You know, I was more Americanized in a lot of ways because of so, some of the stuff I was watching on TV. And I grew up on Hollywood movies and stuff like that. So I was completely buying into the programming, I guess, in a way. I skateboarded, mm -hmm. skateboarding, music, punk rock. Uh, uh, well, my, one of my uncles gave me a Misfits, Misfits uh, record once when I was a kid, and that just put me on the path. Yeah, uh, that logo, maybe the best logo in music, bro. Uh, <laughs> I don't even listen to them, but I know the logo. I'm like, that's. I remember listening to the lyrics and them being absurdly violent and dark for no reason. Yeah, and that spoke to me for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> growing up. Uh, but uh, it's interesting. You, you you had like angst, would you say? So when I was my my life as a kid was great, and my mom was amazing. She was like, uh, I, I speak about her a lot. Uh, she was great. She was amazing. She was a teacher. She was a she was a healer. She was everything. My dad was doing great. The business was doing great, uh, and everything was stable. And then when my brother was nineteen. He died in a car accident, a very tragic and horrible one. Uh, so my life went from having a stable family nucleus with my brothers and everything going great to having a psychiatric break in my mother and to having an, a, a dad that went into a deep alcoholism and depression and a brother who ran from that whole issue. And I was left to my devices at 13. Uh, I, which I thought like it's only through therapy and stuff like that they figure out that oh that's not it's not normal to be absurdly independent at fourteen and just being a feral kid and just running around and doing shit yeah uh, so my childhood ended at thirteen when my brother died mm. and the angst not angst I think it's a since nobody's here for me I need to be absurdly independent was my reaction to it mm -hmm. so I started to work at fourteen. I, started, I ran away from home in a, big, a lot of ways, and the, my home was empty. People were there, but nobody was there. Yeah. Um, I don't ever want to know what it is like to lose a son, but whatever that is killed my mother in life, and it took a part of my dad, too. Yeah. Um, I wanted to grow up to be like a doctor, you know, and I, I, I went to medical school for a bit 
But something about that experience basically made me feel unsafe and made me want to be... To this day, my dad knows my brother's favorite song. And he's talked about... When my brother died, he had a funeral that was like a concert. Musicians were there. Giant party. Multiple women approached me, presenting themselves as my brother's girlfriend. So he was a gangster. He was a gangster. He was, he was a gangster. He was, he was, he was famous. He was loved. There was a shit ton of people there. And what was his favorite song? Ah, uh, Nieves de Nero by Shalino Sanchez. Ya llegaron las nieves de Nero. It's basically a song that's lamenting that the seasons are changing and, and this woman is just not coming back, you know? So it's a lamentation song, but I don't know why. He was so young. He was singing about such sad things. Um, something about his death and the fact that he lived so largely, and he was just 19 when he left. Um, when he died, I, I ran away from home in a lot of ways. I came back one night, and this is something that came up in therapy recently. Like I, I've been through about two years of it. Um, I was 13 and I came back home and she was on the balcony waiting. Like every night she would wait for my brother to come back because she was really distraught. Uh, so I walked over to the door into the light of the hallway and I could see some excitement in her because I could see she was praying. She would pray. Uh, she would say the holy mysteries. Uh, and I walked into the light and she, she thought it was my brother. And when she saw it was me, she saw right through me and rolled her eyes out. And that made me wish that I had died instead of my brother. And that led me on a path to, it led me on a path to do epic shit, basically. So if, if I have to, I have to figure out a way to gain my, my, my mom and dad's attention just like my dead brother. So I have to figure out how to die in an amazing way, mm. right? So that's, that was my origin point, I guess, that diverged me from being a kid who was great and wanted to figure things out and was playing in a bicycle and just had a normal life to a, a kid at 14 scamming shit and figuring out how to sell stuff and wearing punk rock uh, t-shirts and getting into a band and just figuring things out for himself and just wow. going on to a life path that led me to having a conversation with you. Yeah, that's profound. Yeah. You made a comment that death is inevitable, yeah. that the death is going to happen. It's not if you'll die, it's what will you die for? Yeah. And uh, I think you mentioned in the conversation with Lex that, you know, there if you're going to die, it might as well be for a good purpose and it might as well be for something. Yeah. And do you feel like that, interaction and sort of that experience with your mother and your brother was kind of the genesis point for that idea? It, 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 so uh, realistically, I made the longest, most complex suicide attempt that I've, that I've ever been attempted, I guess. Uh, in my mind, I said, well, my brother died and he was insanely famous and great and loved and all these people keep at talking about him. And, you know, he's eternally young and beautiful and he's a light forever. How can you compete with that? But it, as a child, let me figure that out. Um, I looked for death when I was legit. Like I, I didn't know, I didn't know well enough to open up my veins or 
do anything horrible like that. But I said to myself, I'm going to live a life that brings me so close to it that if, if it finds me, it will be a good death. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah, it really takes the edge off of dying if it's so... I mean, in a way, it was glamorized for you. Yeah. Like you got to see this like beautiful celebration of your brother's life. Yeah. And especially as a young kid, you have this extremely regular life. You have these two parents that are doting and loving and available. And then not only do you lose your brother, you lose both your parents. Yeah. And in a way, you probably lose your older brother, right? If he just kind of removes himself. One of the most painful things that uh, anybody can experience is, is seeing somebody dead in but in life, you know, like like somebody dying that's still alive. Yeah, and in a big way, that's what happened to my mom and my dad. You know, they they both left. You know, and I, again, I, it's not blaming them. Like, I I can't imagine what that pain is. Yeah, but, you can't blame them. It's, but it's you know, but, that, but the fact that it happened and it's not necessarily their fault doesn't change the trauma that you experienced. And it's not only the trauma from that one experience; it's the persistent trauma from all the other experiences that happened therefore that you can't confide in them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, I was transformed. Yeah, yeah. grief reveals you. Yeah, and I think it revealed something to me. Um, Did it shake your relationship with religion? Yeah. Um, you had mentioned before, I don't want to rehash too yeah. much of the conversation, but uh, in, Guadalupe. in yeah, the studio I have a... A, vir a Virgen de Guadalupe uh, yeah. standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was raised Catholic and specifically Guadalupano. I was raised to venerate the Virgin of Guadalupe. Uh, my, my mom and my dad weren't married through the church, but we were, they were very devoutly Catholic, but they didn't get married to the church, why? through the church. I don't know. I, I've never, I've never, I never really figured out why. But they, but they were very Catholic. But you you knew that though. Yeah, yeah. And they told you, or you just found it out. Uh, I I only found it out later on in life. I just didn't. I never put two and two together. Hmm. Uh, I went through I went through a you know, baptized communion. My my brothers did it. Like we went to church. It was fine. When my brother died, an uncle went to the church to ask a priest to talk to my parents, and they wouldn't talk to my parents because they didn't get married through the church, and that is when that relationship ended and my family left the church basically after that. Well, I, or I, I, it wasn't in our lives anymore. Wow. Uh, so like a big part of that, that spiritual stuff and me died then as far as the relationship with the church, but it was reborn later in a different way. Hmm. Um, that probably also fueled your sort of angst towards bureaucracy. Yeah. Right. Like your parents are hurting, they're in pain. And they need help, but they can't get the help no. that they need because of some type of like technical. Yeah, you weren't married through the church, so we can't comfort you in the moment of the, the most need ever. Yeah, because you just lost a son. And yeah, it's kind of definitionally like bureaucracy. It's like just exactly. yeah, it's it was frustrating. It was frustrating, and also that again, I, the the rebellion aspect of it, it produced a lot of whole experience produced a lot of stuff in me, but specifically. This, weird rebellion against, if I'm not safe and stable, then I'm not, then I'm, let me just lean into it. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole looking for chaos aspect of it. So now you're 13, listening to punk music, skateboarding. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about the, the skateboarding thing. I want to kind of tap into like the cartel world at this point, because yeah. I'm sure now like you're kind of probably into the 90s, the cartels are starting to like take foothold within TJ. There, 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 there's uh, shootouts uh, in public. 
that that are never happened before. Not not really. Uh, you know, you would see judiciales, which are the, the the police detectives in Mexico, like doing shit in the city, and they you wouldn't you wouldn't tell their cops or the cartel members because you couldn't tell. But maybe they were both. Who knows? A lot of them were like that. It was it, the corruption was always there in law enforcement. Sure, and it was always shady. But then you saw started seeing a presence through the Ariano Felix cartel and some of the ruptures that they had with members of the Sinaloa cartel. And so you start seeing a back and forth between, you know, federal police would show up, were working for one cartel, getting a shootout with the local police because they're, all, they're working with bodyguards with the other cartel. Of course, of course. Um, I'm skateboarding with my friends at a place called La Bandera. It's where the big flag is right now in Tijuana. It's flying over, over next to a military uh, um, base. And I, the sto I don't know if, I, again, like uh, piecing things together in history, you, you don't know if it's real or not, but mm -hmm. uh, they would put music on in that, cart in that uh, military base and they would put the volume up while we were skateboarding outside randomly. Uh, and I never knew what that, why that was. I would just randomly just put music on inside of there. It's weird for a military base. And it's later on that we figured out that, oh, like when I was working and active that I saw them do it again now as a cop and working with them in, in, a, in a capacity. Oh, it's to drown out the screams of the people that they're working on in there. That's what, what I was, as a kid, you didn't know what was going on. You saw that just you're skateboarding in this, uh, park and you're dragging these uh, homemade poles and tubes to to slide on and all this shit and oh did you just this is in the this is like the background noise that you're it's starting to climb you don't know what's going on you start seeing tension around the city in in a lot of ways there was a phenomenon that happened in Tijuana that didn't happen anywhere else I think in the cartel world the phenomenon of, the phenomenon of narco juniors. Narco juniors are basically well-off middle-class kids in Tijuana, and some of them well-off kids in Tijuana joining cartels because they were enticed into it because they loved the music that they they loved the life. I guess these are like children of doctors and yeah, business business and business industry like well-off, well well well-placed people, government officials' kids and stuff like that. So imagine an organized crime element that starts from the bottom that now has hands and roots in every single rich person's family and, and industry and community in Tijuana. It became entrenched in a very deep way. So you started, uh, I mean, I remember going to high school and you know, you would get the kids that would sell you weed uh, and you would smoke it in the bathroom, which was great, you know, <laughs> horrible Tijuana weed. Um, and then you would get kids that would carry guns to school that were in the life. And then they would get picked up in, you know, cars that were kind of weird. And then you, you would know well enough not to get to pick a fight or do anything to them because some shit would happen. And then you would see them steal other dudes' girlfriends in a forceful and evil way. That type of stuff you start seeing, which was like, hey, this is not part of the normal. Mm. Uh, and you so, understood what the cartel was at that point. Like, at what age were you? Were you like, oh, there is this thir thirteen? Uh, so at thirteen, I was like oblivious to life, and then that, what happened happened. So I became independent, hyper aware, and I started talking to people. I started seeking safety and awareness in any way I could. 
and just seeing, you know, seeing some of it on the news, seeing it some some of it in popular culture, and just talking to people about, hey, Andrew, remember uh, Andres? Yeah, what about Andres? He's gone. Nobody knows where he is. It's like, wow. how? Uh, no, I don't know. They, they went. Some people came to his house that said they were cops, and they took him. And I, so where is he? Nobody knows. And then they find him four days later. Wow. And then it happens again to another friend. So now not only is your f sense of core safety through your family taken away, but now societal safety is stripped away. Yeah. And uh, pe people getting taken, abducted, and then ransomed off or people getting killed because they're in the life. Mm -hmm. uh, people randomly being women, girls who are cute and somebody says they're cute and then them getting picked up at gunpoint at their homes in front of their fathers and mothers. Medieval shit. Yeah. You know, pillaging shit. Yeah, insane brutality. Cold, power-hungry people doing inhumane things to each other. Uh, you start seeing it more and more. So m more and more lines were being crossed as time went on. Mm -hmm. Like this is the nineties turning, going into the two thousands. So there was a rule, no women, no children, you know, probably somewhere in the sixties or seventies or eighties, who knows, I was gone. Right. You know, you would see shootouts and you would see people getting executed with their families inside of the car with them. Uh, uh, there was a few famous massacres in Baja where they would go, they, one, one of them was in Rosarito, I think where they went into a, 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 a little hacienda uh, type space and they murdered women and children. They basically took everybody out and executed them. Uh, for what reason? God knows. But you started seeing a level of brutality that was, it was almost, almost like an arms race to see who could be the most brutal. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as like your personal community as you're coming up, skating became your world. Yeah, it became a, a, a collection of misfits like myself that didn't kind of belong in other parts of society. We weren't well, it wasn't, uh, you know, being a skate, uh, be, skateboarding gave me, it's only recently that I kind of figured how much that gave me. And how, how were you introduced to it and what did it do for you? Um, my friends, uh, my my best friends started skateboarding and I basically had to join in if they wanted to be with them right i wasn't particularly good at it i was very good at breaking into places though and climbing fences and figuring how to construct things that we can skate on mm. uh, i was like the problem solving component yeah I was, I was yeah i would i'd figure things out for us um i um i remember just realizing that all the people that were with me we, we would close off a street and just skate or go to places and get chased off by the cops and stuff like that um, I realized that these people were all running with me. You know, all of us are fleeing the cops. All of us are running from one skate spot to another. So I could run away with all of these people because all of us are running away. That feels way. good. Oh, it felt great. It felt freeing. So exhilarating. Uh, also, I was doing a lot of cardio workouts, you know. Um, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was very welcoming. Um, as time pr progressed, though, like, uh, you know, speaking of seven, like 16, 17, 18, like the skateboarding started kind of like uh, 
everybody started had, had to go on a path, you know, like school and, and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, since I wanted to gain my parents' attention again, because I, I overachieved in a lot of ways. So I went to medical school, you know, uh, and like friends like, like, medical school, you, you know, fucking spiked hair, you know, uh, was in a band for a while. Our band was called Arm the Homeless, you know, <laughs> prophetic that I now teach people how to improvise weaponry and stuff like Hilarious. that across the country. Yeah. Um, I figured, uh, I figured out that, you know, skateboarding was great and everything like that, but it's obviously not a life path. Being in a band and all that was great, but it was probably not my life path and I needed to do something that would be important. So I went to medical school. Um, 9-11 happened around that time. Mm -hmm. And it hit Tijuana like a sledgehammer. It, uh, the bars were full before 9-11. People would cross in freely and they would spend their money in weekends in Rosarito and it was a crowd of people. And then 9-11 hit. I was, uh, I was putting on my white coat and my white pants and my white shirt because you would wear all white when you go to medical school in Mexico. And I w as I was dressing up, I turned on the TV and the second plane hit the tower. And I was like, holy shit. In my mind, I was like, hmm, well, that's far away. That's not gonna affect us. And it did. The economy went in the toilet. My dad's business failed. So now, not only were we a broken family, we're broke as well. <laughs> and I couldn't afford medical school on my own. So I had to look for options. I had to look for some options and I was lost for a while. And all of a sudden I saw an ad in the newspaper that said, wanted, young, unmarried, you know, motivated men, you know, want to join this experimental police force. Want in on it. That's a sketchy sign. I saw it and I was like, what is, what is this about? Young you know? boys wanted? I, would, I wouldn't have gone for that. I, young, young men. <laughs> young right, men. Right. Young men wanted, uh, unmarried, if, you can, if, if possible, you know, no, they had these requirements, I guess. And I remember seeing it and I was a punk rock kid. Still am at heart. Fuck the cops. Puercos de mierda. You know, that oh, I had hate for them, content. Uh, it fucking, several skateboards, skateboards were taken from me. I was beaten by the cops several times, caught, arrested, all this shit. Yeah. And all of a sudden I see this, there's no opportunity, by the way. Like, it's not like, hey, I'll just get a job at Starbucks or I'll go work here at Costco. No, no, this is, the economy's in the toilet. Everybody's fucking suffering. The, the only other employment that I could figure out for myself, I was working at a video store. The only other employment that I could figure out for myself was going into a call center. And I applied to a call center job at a place called Telvista in Tijuana. People won't listen to this that are from Tijuana will laugh at that probably. Um, I applied to that. And I also applied to this other program thing that they had on. I took the newspaper I had to my dad and my mom and I said, hey, I'm gonna do this. My mom didn't respond. But my dad said, you won't make it through. And my brother said the same. What's up guys, we're gonna take a break really quick because you need to take your health seriously. And the best way to do that 
is with the good folks at Bubs Naturals. Oh, yeah. Bubs Naturals is amazing. It's a great company. It's Sometimes you get these different companies that are very pretentious. It's like, do this. Do Bubs is very approachable for all types of people. It seems that way probably because it was named after Glenn Bub Doherty. Yeah. This guy was an absolute legend, truly a hero. He was a Navy SEAL who laid down his life saving Americans and fighting for his brothers. So if it's good enough for Glenn, it's good enough for me. Bubs has a bunch of different products. They got everything. Collagen peptides, take care of your hair. They got oil powders. They got coffees. But the thing I want to talk to you about today is hydrate or die. This little pack right here. I'm never going to talk about a product on this show that I have not tried personally. And I'm telling you, I have been using these packs for the past couple of weeks. The hydrate or die pack is absolutely amazing. It tastes great. This is the thing. Sometimes with these different powders, they have a weird aftertaste. They make you feel a little weird. This one is amazing. You just drop it right in there. Give it a little swirl. I really love this one. This one tastes absolutely amazing. And the thing I love the most about it is you're sipping it and you're like, hmm, why is this so good? This must be packed with added sugars. Mm -mm, no added sugar. Only six ingredients. I mean, I'll tell you right now on the box. Organic coconut water powder, Himalayan salt, natural lemon flavor, magnesium citrate. Is it? It's as bare bones and basic as you can get to actually be taking care of your health. Absolutely a performance enhancer. I take this before I work out. I feel way more hydrated. There's nothing better. If it's good enough for a Navy SEAL, I'm telling you, it's good enough for you. I mean, I'll just go through the list here. 2,000 milligrams of electrolytes, no added sugar, six ingredients, vegan, plant-based, gluten-free, soy-free. If you want a very easy, approachable, natural health and wellness company, I'm telling you, Bubs are the guys for you. I'm actually drinking out of my Bob Shinobi Ninja cup right now. Having a great time. Honey, if you're interested in taking control of your health, we're going to do it with Bubs. So if you want to check it out, go to Bubs Naturals, B-U-B-S Naturals, N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S.com. And I want you to use the code GAGNON, mm -hmm. G-A-G-N-O-N, for $15 off your order. That's right. BubsNaturals.com. Take control of your health. Start taking it seriously. There's no better investment in your life than into your health. Let's get back to the show. You won't make it through. The worst thing they could have told me. Yeah, now it's now fuck it's, you forever. Now it's personal. Let's go. Let's go. Um, I found myself in the selection process. And looking around the room, I wasn't like any of these people. Uh, some of them were ex-military guys. Some of them older men. You know, I was 20, about to turn 21, which was the cutoff. Uh, it was the, uh, the, the youngest you could be. But there were people in there, 35, you know. Uh, experienced men that had lived a life, a different kind of life than I was, th than I had. So I was, I felt out of place like a motherfucker in there. I was wearing Edney's for selection. I was standing in a, with a group of people, uh, some of them very fit. I thought they were very fit. And I was like, what am I doing here? And then they, they had us run, uh, to, to time us and to see how, like, if we could make this run. And I ran all of those motherfuckers, all of them in my skateboarding shoes. And it was because I was fucking doing cardio every day because I skateboarded. Yeah, yeah. That's where you're used to running in. Yeah. yeah. So it, uh, I was doing cardio every day. I just didn't realize that. So I, huh. So I guess that worked. Um, I was committed, you know, like, oh, I'm excelling in this weird space um i passed all the exams um i was on my way to be a state prosecutor's office police officer basically being a, a ministerial uh, basically a police detective that was the path that i wanted to take mm -hmm. but then somebody there said hey well we have this state police experimental new thing we're doing you want to go into that 
los pepos as they're called now they've changed they've it's a it's not the best institution now but back then it was new it was experimental it was a project that a man uh, by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Lezaola, who's like a legendary lawman in, in Mexico, a former military officer, started. So he was like, how can I change this war that's happening? Uh, I can't trust the cops. I can't trust these people over here. So I need to make something from the ground up. Mm. And that's what he did. He developed a program of training, selection, And then those people he took out and turned into a specifically counter-organized crime. Now, was this made in reaction to the militarization of the cartels? This was right before the kickoff of this war, this like open kickoff of the war. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was already a problem. When I was inside training, we had one of the first like legit operations against the cartel group in Tijuana that led to a shootout and some epic stuff. A bunch of uh, federal agents showed up to the house of a known cartel boss and he basically drove through the garage door with an armored vehicle and had a shootout that was a few hours long with them. In a very, It was basically a military operation in the middle of the city. And we were in training while this was going on, so we were looking at the shit on the news, so we were looking at what we were going into. Terrifying. Uh, for me... It was exciting because I was very damaged. Yeah. But for the people there, I remember, like, I didn't have kids. Like, some of them in there had kids, even though they said they didn't. Some of them, you could see the fear in them, you know, like, oh, shit. Um, when we got there for training, I thought it was like, you know, my experience, like, police academy, you know? I was going to get uniforms and we're going to learn about arresting people and laws. And, and kick a door down. Kick, and, yeah. You know. Uh, but but just, I don't know, I had a concept of what, what, they, what we were going to do. And all of a sudden, I see all of our instructors are all ex-Special Forces soldiers from a group called GAFE. GAFE. Ga- the, that's the, the, people, the, people that, the people that turned into the Zetas, the Zeta cartel, were all members of the GAFE, the original like, SF units in Mexico. Highly motivated and educated people. Uh, Armed security, bodyguards, that kind of thing. I mean, these guys were guerrilla warfare specialists. What are they doing training cops? It was, it was, uh, I didn't understand what was going on until, you know, later on in life, you figure out what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember, and I, people were there with me. I have, I've mentioned this a few times, but they told us, the first thing they told us when they, uh, they uh, formed everybody up, hay pan y verga para comer y se acabó el pan hace tres días there's bread and dick to, 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 to eat here and bread ran out three days ago so you're only gonna get dick wow. and our heads were shaven off like cleanly shaven off uh, we started they, they treated us like garbage And they, their, their whole intention was to make people quit and leave. There was a open door policy. So the doors open, leave. But the deeper you were into the training, the more committed you were to it because yeah, that's course. the programming. The more you pain know? you've already endured. That, that sunk cost fallacies in your head. You're like, bro, I've already come this far. Yeah. Got to keep going. Uh, patriotism, nationalism, 
militar militarized programming. You know, they're doing a great job. It's it's a program. They're they're those were tenets of the program though, like Mexican nationalism. Uh, yeah, uh, 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 marching, uh, being told ordered to march, and and, uh, and formation movements were very much part of the mental aspect and program of what they were doing. Uh, daily uh, flag ceremonies, uh, milit paramilitary training, uh, assault training that wasn't, you know, if I'm a cop, why am I wearing this plate armor? And why am why do I have all these magazines? Why am I training how to assault a building in a military way? Why am I training to engage convoys of vehicles? Like, or an ambushing, like, what is this? So what how are you doing? feeling in the training? You're this skate kid, this punk rock, fuck the police person. Uh, I have all of what they need. I like risk, I like adrenaline, I'm, I've am i already lived a life of risk, I've already ran from the cops, mm -hmm. I've already, I, so I have, I'm exactly what they need. I'm exactly what they need. I felt like I was exactly where I needed to be. And you can't really quit. No. Then, you, then you prove your parents right, yep. you prove your brother right. So I'm highly motivated and like a lot of the people there that are also highly motivated, all of us were perfect for what they wanted us to do. So. Mm. We we're very much used. Yeah. So you're seeing people probably tougher than you, stronger than you, more fit, that are leaving the program. It's dropping out. Because they don't have that motivation that you have. No. They have parents that were like, oh, try your best. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I, I, yeah. So again, again, I'm a child of trauma. So yeah. I didn't realize that at that point, but that was a weapon for me. Mm. Uh, and I don't want to backtrack too far, but how come once you have this period of extreme liberation and freedom at like 13, 14, you're skating, but you're still drawn to this moral good. You're like, I'm still going to be, you know, in medicine or that, then I'm still drawn to the police. Why were you never drawn to this like chaotic evil? Like, why were you never seduced by the cartel and everything that could offer you? Money wasn't important to me. I just wanted to have the respect and gain the attention back of my mom. Mm -hmm. So your mother ultimately was that installation of the moral good. Yeah. I mean, I saw what that was in her. If you went into crime or you went into cartel life, uh, that I, 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 I couldn't. That I wouldn't have brought you what you sought. No, you were seeking. I wasn't seeking that type of glory. I, I just wanted my mom to pay attention to me again. Yeah, which is sad to kind of think about, but it's that's. I, ca I couldn't see any other motivation for me. Like, uh, if I so if I died horribly at work as a cop. That would have been enough to, for my mom to gain attention, but like to, to see me again mm -hmm. or to witness me again, I guess. Or you, know, you graduate as a doctor. Or you graduate as a doctor. Like, oh, great. Maybe she's now going to celebrate me in the same way that they celebrate my dead brother every day of the dead. Right. You know? So I was looking for that, I guess. And you did know? you have opportunities when you were younger to join cartels? Yeah. yeah. You had friends it's that a, it's were probably... not, it's not, it's not. It's not like, hey, do you want to join this criminal organization? It was like, hey, do you want to cross some stuff for us into San Diego. Mm -hmm. Okay, pay this much money. Hey, do you know anybody that would want to, you know, join this thing and do this stuff for us? Right. And here's this money. Hey, look at look at Antonio. Look at his car. He's driving around that Dodge, that new Dodge. That's pretty cool. You want to be in that? Yeah, a lot of my friends took that. Yeah, and ran with it. Uh, I I, it would, I I just since I was a punk rock kid, like, none of that should appeal to me. You know. Uh, the music and the life, the cartel, that shit, that, it was not. It's, it was outside of the scope of my interest. Mm -hmm. I was just not into any of it. My my whole uh, my whole search was first off recognition from my parents, and the second one was freedom. Yeah, 
It's it's, like, I just want it to be free. You and know? so freedom is like leaning you towards societal rebellion. But ultimately your mother's and, and your parents' approval is leading you to towards sort of a, like this social cohesion, this moral good. Yeah, and also just to do something that is epic or is it, is big enough that they will look at me. Right. You know? And so how long does it take for you to get through training once you're in with the special force? <sighs> it's like six months training there. And basically the, third, the first three months is them trying to make you quit. <laughs> yeah. And then when they realize who the pe good people are, I mean, not good people, like the people that are there for the right reasons, then then there's a then there's the people that don't pass the FBI background checks that were being put on us, which we didn't know realistically. I don't know what any of that was, but hmm. a lot of us were actually put through American FBI background checks. So they would walk in and say, Antonio, raise your hand. Hey, did you? participate in the smuggling of humans into the United States and were caught at this, at this time. Yes. Okay. You can't be here. Get out. Hey, you, is your family member a member of this cartel? And are you family members with this one? Yeah. Okay. You're a cartel plant. Fuck you. Get out. So people started getting kicked out in that way as well. Wow. Because cartels were aware of what was going on in a way. So they wanted to put people in. So a lot, and they did. A lot of them got through. Later on, we found out. But like you're seeing, you're experimenting this thing where there's a large group of people and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Like, I'm still here. I'm still here. Like, oh, hopefully I don't fuck up. Hopefully I don't fuck up. And you're like trying to survive this process. Um, and all the time we're seeing what's going on outside. It's getting worse. It's like a storm. You're in this protected space it's dangerous inside you know, but it's everything you're, you're living in this microcosm of what might happen outside and you're hearing news you're listening to stuff uh six months and then a few months to kind of prep other things but uh i remember in graduation you get a radio like a satcom radio um you get a gun uh I got a gun that I'd never even looked at, seen or shot before. You're in the academy and they teach you how to shoot a Beretta, mm -hmm. 92 FS pistol. And when you get out, you get a Glock, which is a completely different gun. And I'd never seen one before. <laughs> so all of a sudden you have this weird space gun in my hand. It's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, unprepared, completely unprepared. I, I mean, I thought we were being prepared, but realistically, yeah, there's no way you can prepare something for the amount of shit that we went out into um well when we went out there was already a few generations of us out there that were part of the program uh i got base duty the first day i got out you're the new guy right but i was motivated uh so I, yeah sure base duty so i went there at the base um one of the older guys came over to me. Hey, what's your name? Ed. Okay, Ed. Uh, grab the uh, sisayas, the bolt cutters. And I'm like, shit, we're going to go on a raid or something. Yes. You know, I grabbed the bolt cutters, you know. Uh, come, ride with me. I went, like, rode with them. I thought I was going to go to do some cool shit, you know, raid or something like that. I don't know, in my mind. Some kid, idiot. Uh, 
we're going to go do a favor for the forensic service people. I had to cut somebody down off a bridge that was hung overnight. Uh, that's when I, that's, that's, you know, like, oh shit, what did I do? That's the moment. Um, so I go up there, uh, cut, cut, cut some stuff off. Uh, there's a, there's a flatbed thing that they put on there and the body flops on there. Uh, People are walk, watching, you know, there's a taco stand across the way and something they're, they're eating. Uh, so start seeing this, this is a norm, this is like a weird normalized thing. It's starting to be in a way. Um, the older guy has been through two years of this already. And it's like, you could see it in his eyes. Um, I was horrified by what I was seeing. And I said, who can possibly be as evil and as horrible to do this to somebody? And he said, Ed, you're, you're stupid. Like, they were kind to him. I was like, what? What do you mean they're kind to him? Yeah. They were, this is, this is kindness. Like, what do you mean? At least they, his family has a body to cry over and bury. This is kindness. The body is a gift. I realized how fucked up of a place that I was in, in that moment where a mutilated, tortured body hung from a bridge left to be found was kindness. And you had heard about this thing, but you had never seen it in that way. I've never, I've, I've never had to cut anybody down from yeah, of course. place. I've never had to do any of that type of shit, you know? Uh, and that memory is still seared in there. It's very visceral. Yeah. I, sm I could still smell it. Um, I still remember the body flopping, you know, that aspect of it. Uh, and I remember the realization that I was seeking freedom and I found myself in hell in a way, you know, that's the only word I could find to describe it. Uh, I was trapped in this, I was, I was, I was set in this path and I can, I, I, I'd, I'd uh, invested too much of me in it. I can leave it, but also I wasn't ready for it and there was nothing you could do to get ready for it, I guess, but it was. How much, how much? What percentage of the emotions in that moment were external, seeking like a why or justice for what had happened? And what percentage was internal where you were like, oh, I'm now in a prison. Yeah. I, I am fucked up for being in this situation. Uh, so it was, it was, most of it was internal. Yeah. yeah. Like it was, I thought I was a badass. I bought into the programming. I'm indestructible. We're just killing machines. We're saving fucking Mexico. ninjas. We're saving Mexico. The flag is on our backs. We need to figure this out. All of us together, all for one and all that shit. And all of a sudden I'm cutting a dude off a bridge and it doesn't mean anything. Isolated. It's isolated. It's just me. It's just me with this old dude who's been here for longer than I have doing a job that I was trained to do when he, his eyes are gone. They're glass. And he's seeing kindness in what 
is in front of me. That's a, it was a lot. It was a, it was a, it was an, it was, it was a lot. I remember going back home that night, uh, previous nights I would go back home and just play video games at a PlayStation, you know? And it was the first night that I didn't. And what'd you do? I drank. I drank a six, uh, a six pack of uh, Bohemia. <laughs> it's a very strong beer in Tijuana, uh, in Mexico. I drank a six pack of Bohemia. That's probably the start of my heavy drinking. And did you know what you were doing at the time? Like, did you go to the store and be like, okay, I'm going to buy this to not feel, or was it completely passive where you're like, man, you know, a beer would be good. Let me have a yeah, beer and just kind of. Like, I, I mean, I, I, have, I had been drinking since I was like 16. Sure. But for parties, for like impressing yeah. friends. Never that, alone. Never alone. Never alone. And all of a sudden I found myself in my shitty room uh, with a mattress on the ground. Uh, with all these idealistic thoughts of what I'm going to do and the change that I'm going to do and all this saving whatever. And I'm drinking myself to sleep. <laughs> so <clears throat> so I can have dreamless sleep. Mm. Drunk, dreamless sleep. So I can rest. Because uh, at this point you were having dreams and nightmares. I mean, it was it was the start of it, but I, 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 I hit, we hit the ground running, you know. Yeah, it was it was it was bad as soon as you got there, um, and also the fact that you 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 had you were insulated when you're training and you're told that you're all this stuff, and then you go out and you're being spat on by the like the people in society because they're on the side of some of these people, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and you probably empathize with them too. You're like, yo, I get it. The police yeah, suck. Yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm on I, your team. And, and I was trying to be good. You know, I was try, I'm trying to not be that. And, and uh, I don't know. But then, you know, you're, 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 uh, I, I got to work with the other members of the military and federal police. Uh, there were there was these things called boom groups, base de operaciones mixtas. So we would work with the army. We'd work with the the federal police basically would run around Tijuana or Baja in general, the whole state. And we would just arrive as a group and just raids and go into cartel safe houses and shit like that. And I was working with them. And again, I had this idealism going in there. I remember going into a house with the army and I was like, scanning all the rooms and figuring things out and just doing my job. And as I'm walking down the stairs, these uh, army guys in full kit are sitting in the kitchen eating abalone. Can, can, what's can, what's can, abalone? Canned abalone. It's a shellfish that is very highly sought after in, 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 in Mexico, in, in the world, actually. It's, uh, not, it's very endangered down there. So they found a bunch of canned abalone and they were just eating it in the kitchen of this cartel safe house. Wild. And, and uh, I walked down the stairs and I'm like doing side exploitation shit, you know, it's like finding laptops and putting phones and things and like finding paperwork and I'm doing my job. And then these guys are just eating abalone in the kitchen. I walk downstairs and look at them and in my mind, like, what are you guys doing in my mind? But then they kick a chair so I could sit down and eat with them. And I did. I realized that you know whatever normal was or whatever concept I had of what was what was a, what I had to do or was about to do was com completely wrong. 
that had to adapt. I had to figure out was what was acceptable was what wasn't. There was a there was a reality being dictated to me by the people that were already in that fight, mm-hmm. and whatever idealisms I had about what right was, what good was, what 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 was correct was completely warped mm-hmm. because everybody had their own concept. It's a free for all. Everybody had a right. Had you were a, you're basically in a, how do they say in Tijuana the fourth power. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is, you know, there's these cartels that exist and the police by just the nature of, I guess, like human tribalism becomes its own cartel. It, and I think it, cartel obviously has a negative connotation. Yeah, but it, it, it's a, tri- it's, it's, it's a, we were, we were another gang. That's your gang. We were another gang. Yeah. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Lizola kind of arrived on the scene for us as far as like a leader and a mentor. Did you respect him? Yeah. I feared him though. It's a man. You if you respected him, well, there was also a fear. Because he's a Lieutenant Colonel Lizola is an amazing human being. But he's definitely a man to be feared. He's in a wheelchair now. And I just uh, did a podcast interview with him for about four hours. I still stand at attention when I see him. You know? Um, what, what did he do initially to gain your respect or to gain your fear? Let's go on a run. And he would run with us. Uh, the first time he came on board in our unit as a commander, as a, as a director, and patrolled Tijuana, I was driving him around. I was with him for the first night of patrol. Uh, I'd seen other directors and other leadership in that position and they were at the office, you know, they were mm-hmm. like, what the fuck are you going to be doing out there? Right. Just send, send the guys, send us. And I, I was at the base and I, I was introduced to him like directly as now an agent, not as a, somebody, a random shaved dude at the academy. Front. Yeah. Like, Hey, like, uh, I was working with, a with a, a commander at that point and I was like gaining reputation and I was being pulled on stuff and they saw potential in me and they saw that I was a crazy motherfucker and that's what they needed. So when they, he came in, it's like he had a, a guy that was driving him around, but he needed somebody from the city to, that, as a guide and also as security. So somebody snapped the finger and said, Ed, I ran over and I bumped into this figure and from Lazola in there, it's like, oh, it's, I'm like stood at attention. He said, are you from Tijuana? It's like, yeah, I was born here. Ah, oh, that's a rare thing. Like everybody's from other places, but you're from here. Yeah, yeah, I'm from here. Cool. Do you know your way around? Yeah, like the back of my hand. Cool. He says, okay, let me see your rifle. And I showed him my rifle. Uh, okay. I didn't understand what that was about. He was basically trying to see if I took care of my weaponry and like if I had accessories on it, if I was committed to the job, I guess. I don't know. And I, and I climbed the car with him. And we started patrolling. Like we would patrol in groups. Uh, back then there was a open bounty on us. We were, we were being hunted. So they would offer money for our badges. There was an ad in the newspaper. Uh, there's a famous paper in Tijuana called El Zeta. Front page on that was Caceria de Policias, you know, cop hunting. And they, they, they were talking specifically about us, how we're being hunted by the criminal organizations. And was there one cartel specifically or all of them? There was one specific cartel, basically a faction of the Sinaloa cartel that was trying to take control over the city from 
the the the, the historically uh, powerful Tijuana cartel or the Oriental Felix cartel. Mm. They, so at that time, we were the guys that would respond. The municipal police wouldn't show up. You know, the federals, federales were from Mexico and they would fly to Tijuana and they would just fucking basically rob and pillage and go back. They didn't give a shit. Mm -hmm. We were the only guys that would respond. Like shootouts, we would go. Like uh, something really hot and heavy that nobody would respond. Hey, we would, the army was with us, so we would show up. Right. You had the training and the weapons and, and, we would, and the we guys. Would, we were making some impactful stuff and... That's why we had a giant target on our backs. And yeah, we, course. but then Lazola came into leadership with us and we legit had our back. Patrolling those first nights with him on the city, he was with us. No, he was with us. Did he remind you of any men that you knew before that? No, I've never met anybody like him ever in my life before or since. And I've met amazing men in my life, but he was, uh, he is uh, still, again, we raided a house in a place called in, uh, uh, Ensenada. Uh, it was a compound, actually, with a giant cartel compound. In the, uh, in the middle of the night, that's probably like three in the morning, we approached it from the beach. Military operation. We we're all cops, but it was a military operation. He was running it. And I remember taking a knee on the beach with a rifle wearing a mask and uh, having my, all my kit and stuff like that, being really quiet about it and worried about being shot at and stuff like that. And then seeing Lizola just basically standing and walking with us without hiding. I looked at him, he looked down at me and I was like taking a knee, taking cover. And all of a sudden this man is here like standing and looks at me like, why are you hiding? So I stood up and started uh, kicking down doors with him. You know, this is the director and he's with us just like doing shit. Um, I think with him, I saw a true believer. Like he believed in what he was doing. Mm -hmm. uh, he, but he, there was a coldness about them, about him though. That I couldn't, I never, I, I couldn't figure out. Like, like he knew who I was. He knew who other people were. Uh, but he would always. The first time I shaked, I shook his hand, was when I interviewed him a few months back. He never, he, he had never shook, shook my hand. Mm -hmm. There was a separation because he came from a military background. He was an officer and that's a line, but I, I didn't know what that was. Did you feel like he was willing to die for the job? I think he was willing to die, kill, or send other people to be killed for the job. He was a true believer. He was all in. Did it make you believe in the cause? Yeah. I saw somebody that represented hope in that aspect because you would look around in this environment and you know who is your mentor figure in this police unit you know mm -hmm. because all of us were new the police unit was new everybody was green nobody knew what the fuck they were doing and all of a sudden you have this man who's not only in charge but he knows what he's doing i think he provided a lot of direction and hope and an example for us and he's doing it with you he's with us yeah you know? he, he and he, like he's he's bad but for us, you know, he's our bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, and also he empowered us. He got us better weaponry. He got us better training. He made us be feared by the other side. And he intentionally figured ways of doing that. You know, he, he developed an actual strategy 
And how many of the guys were you with within your unit that were directly under him? I mean, everybody was under him, but like I was operating with a small group of people, probably like 15 people. And everyone had that same respect. Yeah. I mean, everybody knew. Some of the guys that were on when he came in fully were corrupted. You know, they, they were on the take and you would see them. You know, we, we knew who they were. They would, some of them would show up in like a, a dude. I remember one dude showed up in a, a Hummer, like a Hummer, like an H2, a yellow H2 to work. Fucking. No, no fear, no shame. Like, wow, that's a cool car, I guess. Yeah, how'd you make that on the, uh, you know, federal police salary? Uh, state police salary, but state, yeah, yeah. yeah but like, I don't know. Um, and also, mind you, back then the federal police was army guys dressed in gray, riding in the back of our trucks. There was no federal police as as it was, as there were later. We were we were the we were the best paid police unit in Mexico at the time. Mm -hmm. So we were like elite specialty people uh but it was again it was a, a it was like a nobody knew what they were doing because nobody ever done that before how nobody, did how did he prove and remind me his name again La, lieutenant colonel lazola 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 yeah lazola that's a, that's a hard one yeah lazola lazola how did he prove that he was fighting for you guys like obviously he's in it with you yeah. but he has his own interests yeah but how did he prove to the group that he was willing to vouch for you and support you. Uh, some of us started getting into situations where we had to use force and he was with us for that. He would support us legally, mm. which wasn't there before. And he was uh, pushing and influencing politics for us. Like we, he got us better weaponry. He got us access to training that was completely unavailable for people like us. Um, my group got access to training in Coronado with people from NSW, basically the Navy SEALs, and uh, people from NCIS, which was unheard of. And it's, I think that's never happened after. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, he basically got us the training we needed to work in an environment like that. So when you think about policing in that area, it's uh, an urban combat or something. It's an, ur an urban combat setting. Who are you going to learn from? Uh, LAPD SWAT guy? Or some seals that are coming back from Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, like uh, I remember, I went to a, a training assignment specifically for protecting our leadership. So, like Lisa Ola was it needed to have security on him, but it couldn't be normal security. It couldn't be a you know a Secret Service type bodyguard situation. It had to be an overt military operation to to protect, protect them. Of course. And who are you going to learn from? The, the guys that were on yeah. Mohammed Karzai's protection detail when Afghanistan was inv was invaded for the first like the, for the first years, those were the guys that brought back lessons, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so people that were in the octave uh, combat zone in the Middle East were showing us things that we were then applying right across the border from San Diego. Crazy madness. Yeah, madness. Did did you did you love him, Lieutenant Colonel Lizola? Yeah. No. That's, that's no, no, that's not, that's not, that's not the word for it, I guess. I, uh, I respect him. Did you love any of the guys in the unit? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we got to experience everything together. You know? mm -hmm. there's, there's a few of them that I, I was really close to. Uh, one of them, 
And I've talked I've talked to him uh, about him a few times. Uh, and I always joke about the fact that I, going through that hell, I prayed for an angel to save me, and God saw fit to send me a devil. <laughs> um, Jaramillo. It's a name that I say every now and then. I, when I was on Rogan the second time, I had a T-shirt that said Jaramillo lives. So Jaramillo was uh, he was part of my group. Uh, older guy, I don't know how the fuck he made it to training. You know, chain smoker. Um, he was on the take at some form, shape, form. He was shady, uh, but he was honorable. You know, loyal, kept me safe. Told me who was in, who was out, you know. What do you mean who was in? Hey, don't talk to those guys over there. Those guys are working for somebody. Hey, those guys over there working for those guys. You probably shouldn't say anything in front of these people over here. How would he know? He's probably. Yeah, he's know? taken as well. Yeah, but he kept me safe. He kept me. He told me where the margins were. Um, I, I And we suffered. Man, man we, we, we went through we went through hell together. Um, since I wasn't married and I didn't have any kids, uh, Christmases and New Year's didn't exist for me, you know, so I'd always be on. Uh, one time during the Christmas season, it was me and him and a few other, the other guys, we were basically patrolling Tijuana, responding to anything high impact is what the, the alto impacto, like a shootouts or executions and stuff like that, bodies being left. And we we uh, were called about a shooting at a at a at a at a, at a very like a margin marginal a marginalized area of Tijuana to the east of the city. And we got there, and it was a bunch of kids outside of a house that had like a that were having like a party. You could still smell the gunpowder in the air. Like a, 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 it was recent. So we got there. It was like guns drawn. You know, the 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 neighbors were hidden. You know, hiding. You know, they saw her get there, and at that time, the criminals, the cartel guys, would dress like us. They would dress like cops. They would wear the badges, the insignias. They would emulate being police officers and show up and shoot everybody. So nobody knew if we were good guys or bad guys, basically. But they were all hiding. Uh, a bunch of kids. They're all shot up and dead in that uh, front uh, front little yard that he had. There was a slope to it. So where they fell, the blood was going down into the street. There's a bunch of spent shell casings everywhere. Two through three AR-15s, 40s, 9s. Uh... There's music still playing, a little speaker. Uh, corridos. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what they were, corridos. And while we were there, like looking at everybody, you know, the, the people of the house started coming out because it's safe now. And kids, you know, kid, little kids started coming out and picking up the shell casings off the ground, except the ones that, were, that fell on the blood. They didn't pick those up. They respected those for some reason, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and Jaramillo was with me, yeah. smoking a menthol cigarette behind me, unfazed by the scene because that's, he's, that's, that's who he was. 
uh, a lady comes over to me and hands me a phone and says, this is, this is the mother of that guy over there. Uh, and I grabbed the phone. Can you tell her what happened? Like, did you and my brain went on autopilot. You know, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't remember exactly what I said over the phone. I just remember her screaming, wailing over the phone. Lamentation. And it brought me back to some of this, the stuff I saw when my brother died, my mom. Uh, the ladies started saying the holy mysteries in front of this, these bodies there. I, people started covering them up. And there's no forensics, like, oh, let's take care of the evidence. That's none of that. Um, they're just covering up the bodies. And, they start, uh, and, and, and then the women start saying the holy mysteries, you know. So again, like this flashback of my loss that I experienced in my life. And I'm, I'm knee deep into it. And then... Uh, Jaramillo comes up behind me and slaps me in the back of the head. <laughs> like, snap out of it. Fucker, we need to go. Go where? We need to go eat. <sighs> yeah, and like I turned around and the forensic people were there now. And the people that were responding to that specific side of it were there. So we had to leave. I got in the car and he looked at me again, slapped me, you know, one of these. Said, what's wrong? It's like, that was hard. You know, that was hard to see. And, and he said, well, get used to it. There's more of it coming. Uh, and we went to get menudo. And I had a plate of menudo after that experience. And while I was eating it, I was like, the red sauce of the menudo, you know, the frothy blood that some of these kids were uh, exuding out of their lungs still. I, uh, I finished the plate and I re realized that that was my new normal and I had to figure it out and Harmi was with me. You know, at least I had this motherfucker with me. Yeah. You know? And then what happens when you go home that night? I drank. Yeah. And none of the older guys, did any of them warn you? Did any of them tell you like? So they were older, but like again, it's a new unit. Like there's, we, nobody's ever done anything like that. Nobody had ever, it, there was no, no. But and I, also there's no, uh, it's not like up here where like, hey, PTSD is the thing. So there's this support network, go to a therapist. If you had any issues that were psychological of any kind, you would lose access to the ability of carrying a firearm. So you were off. So you couldn't say shit. You didn't want to say shit. And how are the other guys coping? Alcohol, mostly. Mostly. Mostly alcohol. Uh, women. Yeah. Uh, falling. Suicide. Mm -hmm. A lot of suicides. And are you talking with any of the guys about how much you're drinking? Do you think that the drinking at that point is a problem? Uh, no. It's a... Uh, Every now and then we get together and it's binge drinking as a group. As a group, right. But it's, uh, it's our celebration. It's our medicine. It's, it's what we do. Mm -hmm. It's uh, putting some corridos on and singing the songs glorifying our enemies and just feeling like men, mm -hmm. you know? Is it affecting you in other aspects of your life? Oh, I mean, 
there is no other aspects of my life. It's everything. Mm -hmm. So my family is, so if my intention was to gain the attention of my family, my family is absent because I'm absent. I'm gone mm -hmm. from their lives. Right. Even if they were interested in connecting with you, there's no Ed to connect with. I'm gone. And did you, are you reconnecting with your family or seeing them like after you've, you know, been initiated into the program or a few years of work? No, I, I can't. I'm ashamed. You're, you're ashamed in that moment. I mean, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, turning into. I don't even know who I am. You know, I'm, uh, my friends, uh, don't recognize me anymore. Uh, again, my, some of my friends are still punk rock kids and they see me doing what I do. So I'm like a Judas, you know, mm. uh, there's a, there's a punk rock song from Argentina uh, by a band called Dos Minutos. Carlos al barrio de la luz. Basically, a dude that sold out and joined the police, and these punks are singing that a bullet is waiting in the street for him. Hardcore. Yeah. And they would sing me that song or they would put that song on for me like hey, there's a bullet in the street waiting for you. Yeah. In jest or serious? Both. Yeah. Um, so, like, uh, I felt lost as shit. Like, I didn't know who I was. I lost most of my identity. My identity was that. Mm -hmm. That was your freedom. Yeah. Well, again, it's funny how freedom can turn into a cage. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I had purpose, though. I had purpose. Mm -hmm. And that was at least enough. Like and, my purpose, yeah. yeah, my purpose was like, was good at it. You know, these people are like having me around, you know, mm -hmm. I'm useful. Yeah. And uh, so at this point, you're like probably a year or two into the program. Probably three, four years into it. Yeah. And are you imagining the next 10 years of your life? I'm. What's up, guys? We're going to take a break really quick because you need to sleep better. Yeah. I'm telling you, everything stems from sleep your ability to perform at your job, your ability to work out, your ability to think quickly, your ability to go on dates and talk to women, your ability to have present, active conversations with your loved ones, with your parents, all of it stems from sleep. You might not even realize, you might just be walking around your day being like, man, I feel terrible, and not realizing like, oh, I only slept five hours, and of those five hours, I was really only asleep for like one or two. I'm telling you, you're gonna be spending a massive percentage of your life, what, like a quarter of your life sleeping? Take it seriously. And if you wanna start taking it seriously, what I want you to do so I want you to check out the people at Beam. That's right, the good people at Beam have invented a powder that have helped thousands of people get to sleep and stay to sleep, and that is called the Beam Dream Powder. Mm-hmm, I tried it. Again, I will never talk about a product on this show that I have not personally tried, and I did it a couple weeks ago. I tried it, I was like, all right, let's just see. Open up the bag, you see the powder. They have a scooper in it, which is nice. A lot of these companies don't include the scooper. Shout out to Beam for including the scoop, thinking about the customer. I take it, drop it in. I just did hot water. Some people do milk. Some people do whole milk. You can go almond milk. I don't think that's crazy. Whole milk might be a little crazy, but you know, to each their own, do what you will. It tastes amazing with all of them. I just did hot water. Again, still tasted absolutely phenomenal. I was going through the box. I was like, what is in this. This tastes so good. And even on the box, it's I'm reading all of these different supplements and minerals that I've heard of for years. And I'm like, man, I should be taking it. And finally, I was like, oh, this is the most convenient, easy way that I can start taking all these things. I mean, just a short list. Magnesium, L-theolene, reishi, melatonin, nano CBD, all of these different supplements that are great for you regardless are now put into one powder that's going to help you get to sleep, stay to sleep. I'm just saying 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed. 
I know I did. I woke up that morning, didn't feel groggy at all. And sometimes you take these powders and you feel a little worse. I'm telling you, I felt amazing. I woke up that morning, I was ready to go. I was alert. I felt great the whole day. I've been taking it every couple of days ever since then. I'm just saying, for me, it worked really, really well. If you're interested in checking it out and joining the thousands of people that are taking their sleep and their health seriously, you can go to Shop Beam. That's Shop B-E-A-M. And what I want you to do is I want you to check out the Dream Powder. Again, I can't vouch for the other flavors. Maybe the other flavors, I don't know why they taste. But I can tell you the cinnamon cocoa, that one was amazing. So you can check it out. Use the code GAGNON, G-A-G-N-O-N, for up to 40% off your order. That's an amazing deal. Up to 40% off your order to take care of your health, to take care and take control of your life. There's no better investment than in your health. So if you're interested, that's SHOP, B-E-A-M. Use the code GAGNON for up to 40% off. Let's get back to the show. We would speak of ourselves as generations like each generation of people coming out of the academy, basically. Yeah, like a class. Yeah, like a class. So the first member of my class that got killed, um, he was a lawyer before he went in. Uh, pretty cool dude. Very serious. Very uh, motivated kid. Yeah, we're, all of us were fucking kids, you know, like I said. He was a lawyer. Uh, but lawyering was not enough for him, so he wanted to do something with his life. So he saw the same thing that I did, but it's funny, like a lawyer and a skateboarding kid, they find themselves in this fucking space. And somehow, you know, we found this, our, ourselves in the same plane of existence, I guess. Great, great guy. Great guy. Uh, quiet, introspective, smart, uh, motivated guy. Trusted him with everything. Uh, we would move around the state and we would stay in hotels sometimes. And we had a buddy system going on. So if you go out, you have to go out with somebody else. Maybe because we were being hunted, you know. A bunch of people show up dressed as federal agents uh, and pick them up when they went to the store coming out of coming out of the hotel. Um, they they were. Uh, they were zip tied, um, beaten, and put into the back of a van. Stories tell us that one of them took out a knife and stabbed one of the dudes before he was taken, and there was a lot of blood there, so it might might be true or might not be true. Who knows? Like so far back, who knows? Um, they were both found tortured and killed. Twenty four hours later. Um, with their IDs screwed into their foreheads. Um, rage, anger, vengeful, murderous anger. Uh, like I see stuff in movies about tribes and like warring parties, like being riled up, wanting to vengeance and shit. Like I never thought I was going to be in a space like that, you know? And uh, it was one of the one of many over the years. I started losing people like that. Mm. Um, this, hey, what's going on? Here's a coffee, and then you're picking them up off the ground, or you're calling family. And it's such a fast-paced life that you can't stop to process. So you're just uh, 
is just living with all of these ghosts in my mind still like were some of them like some of the first there's there's a picture that i posted on my instagram account i posted it a few times and it's part of the generation that i came out with and there are unblurred faces in that picture and if they're unblurred it's because they're gone uh these kids these these kids were amazing kids i mean they were doing amazing work with us and i mean they were part of this whole horrible shit going on but they're great in my mind they're still waiting for me somewhere in a hotel yeah uh, two of the other guys that i lost early on uh they would call their girlfriends when we were at we would stay at a hotel like there was for some reason my room was always the one that was like the party central they would all pile into mine uh they would call their girlfriends drunk and play romantic music over the phone uh, they would take they would take the shitty watches at night to watch our backs you know they were selfless people uh, they're gone um they're not only you know suddenly gone out of your life but there's no hey sit with this grief you know here's a counselor to talk about some of this shit there's you're like no they're just stripped out of your life and they're gone yeah and it's not even that you can't even process their loss or death but you i i wish i could speak to their the girlfriends so i could at least tell them how amazing they were in life mm -hmm. but i i don't even know where they are they're probably married now and have a whole different life but it's a weird it's a, it's, it's it's a weird thing and I, I imagine people that have been in the military and experienced some of that loss uh in a war zone far off might have a semblance of that but my world was at home yeah it's it's strange that you and these girlfriends felt the same grief you both loved these men yeah and they're gone and, and we can't share it we can't, i can't see i can't speak to them because i don't because i have to keep going yeah and so they, and they're just left behind ruminating on that grief is probably risky for you as well right like just even just even security wise right? it yeah. makes you it makes you vulnerable it, it makes me it, yeah you don't see the car next to you mm -hmm. with the newspaper over the ak-47 and you tell someone about it and then you lose your weapon or you lose your ability to patrol. And then if you lose your ability to patrol, or your ability to do missions, now you've lost your community, you've lost your yeah. purpose. Uh, you're disarmed. And yeah. now you're not only disarmed, but now people know that what you, what, where you were and what you did. So you're, you're a target as well. Yeah, well, it doesn't make the pain go away, but at least you're with people. Yeah. And least, if, if they take you out of what you're doing, then you're alone with the pain. Yeah. And that's the scariest place of all. You're, you're, you don't have purpose anymore. And when you're in that space and you don't have anything and you only have his purpose and you're a child of fucking abandonment trauma. Jump out the window. That's it. Yeah. Um, suicide was also on the table for me back then. Mm -hmm. Like I legit thought about it and I saw many of my friends go down that path. And what pulled you away from it? I was, I was looking for that bullet that people kept singing about, you know? in the streets yeah i wanted to, i wanted to find that like i took a lot of risky risky shit jobs uh, the, the death has to be for a purpose yeah i thought if I, I thought if i was going to do it i would probably i would rather have it done for something i guess mm -hmm. uh, you hear this thing suicide by cop 
<laughs> there's people that do this in society now where, you know, they feel so much hopelessness and desperation. They'll go do something crazy yeah. just to have someone take them out. Burnout. The burnout is fucking go off, go out, go out in a flame of glory, that, that whole aspect of it. I, I think I had some, some romantic notion of that, I guess, but I wanted to die in such a way where my funeral would be a party. Right. Again, yeah. if you if you take yourself out, it's not going to be no. that type of celebration. No. But it, but it was still on the table though. Like I was, because the pain is immense. It's deepest, blackest void. Any other way to medicate during the day? Like, are you drinking throughout the day? Yeah. Were some of the guys were some of the guys doing like Xanax or any other type of like drug? So yeah, drugs were every like drugs were there. You know. Uh, <laughs> Later on, I got into a command position and I would supervise drug testing. And I remember telling one of the guys, like, congratulations, you passed the drug test, but you're also pregnant. <laughs> yeah. So it's Mexico, you know, <laughs> there's a ways around shit. I, uh, you know, I'm like, uh, cocaine, um, other shit was there. <laughs> I, I was alcohol was my thing. You know? Yeah, I I didn't want to get stimulated. I want to get, I wanted to die every night. Yeah, night. disassociate. Yeah, I wanted to leave. So for me, it was alcohol. But yeah, people were doing shit. People were destroying their marriages if they had them, because because risk. Are you noticing physical things within your body, or actually the inverse? Are you not noticing physical things? I know we no. talked about it a little bit before, but one of the common symptoms of disassociation is literally losing contact with your physical sensation. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So, oh, I'm in a place that is cold as shit. Why am I not wearing a jacket? You know. Uh, oh, I forgot to eat for two days. Yeah, I forgot to eat for a few, for for a few days. Uh, I should be drinking water. What the fuck am I doing? Mm -hmm. uh, basically, you're. That and also destructive, horrible relationships with women who are completely shouldn't be with, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you, so you basically, like, what I notice as far as a pattern, like, with everybody there, not just me, is uh, self-destructive tendencies outside of work or within work, because I don't know. There's no processing grief. There's no processing trauma. Keep it to yourself. Shut up about it. Be a macho. Be a tienes que ser hombre. Aguantate. You know nobody cares. You know mm -hmm. you don't trust anybody. You know you don't trust them outside and you don't trust them inside. So it was you'd see self destructive tendencies, suicide again. Like people people leave with suicide constantly. You know it was, just, it was like a, you would see them smiling and everything's fine. I remember one of them, one of the guys that I lost to, to suicide. I I drove him. We were working up a, 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 a bodyguarding detail together. And I remember hanging out with him that day before he, he shot himself. Um, he got a, uh, we went to an OXO, which is like a 7-Eleven in New Mexico. And I was calling somebody over the phone, uh, having an argument, like a girl, you know. And he said, like stay here what do you want from the store and he went out and got me some things that i needed you know paid for it himself like yeah thank you man like i appreciate it laughed about some bullshit on the radio talked some gossip about some shit at work uh he got on a plane flew to mexicali and shot himself that night mm -hmm. uh 
So it was like, and again, also the threat outside too. People are trying to kill you outside too. So it's like a, it's a wild space. Yeah. I've heard people describe that piece before uh, finality. Yeah. And uh, I've known people sort of tangentially that have, have gone through this kind of process of like, you know, final termination, ending their life. And the th common thread is that there's a, a semblance of peace in the days before. Yeah. Because there's a solution. For me, it's peace, but also like weird kindness, almost like a saintly kindness to some of them. Like mm -hmm. when you, maybe it's just hindsight, I guess, but they shine I guess, in a way. Like you, like if I could go back and I, now I know what it is. Like I've had a few people in my life at this stage of my life in that process. And I'm always fucking running to try and, because I know what that is. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, when you're going through it and you're going like, oh, this, this is a, he's doing great. He's doing better. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, you, I remember having some of these guys basically go through a period of like, you could see that they're fucked up. And all of a sudden they, you, it seems like they're doing better. You know, and yeah, it's because they're at peace with the decision. Yeah. Yeah. There's a way out. Yeah. Can you describe, it seems like a lot of the missions you've described thus far are sort of reactionary. It's, you know, some, yeah, something happened and then it's reacting to the scene. It's trying to, you know, have presence on the scene to try to diffuse the situation. Is there any offensive measures? Yeah. And yeah. can you describe some of those and what are some of the risky situations that you're voluntarily putting yourself in? Yeah. I mean... Number one, I'm choosing to protect and be next to the biggest targets in our institutions. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm next to leadership constantly as a bodyguard, and later on as a team leader. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm one of the guys that shows up into these situations where there's a uh, one of this. I remember the first one of its kind. Um, there was a, a convoy of vehicles reported leaving downtown into the Via Rapida towards the east of the city. And they just picked up two people. And there's nobody responding. And we show up. And I'm in the back of a pickup truck with a with an AR-15 with three magazines. And two of them in my back pocket and one of them in the rifle. And uh, a guy in front driving. I was in the passenger seat, but I said, it's probably better if I'm in the back of the truck it's more mobility and i have a good platform to shoot from uh it's only that when we get there that we realize that we're the only <laughs> we're the only responding unit the other guys got lost in traffic or i don't know what happened or maybe they were freaked out by the situation we were just running into fake into facing this horrible dangerous thing uh we heard on the radio they're going through this street like this street this is the street we're on and as soon as I said that in my mind, the car, the convoy starts driving across slowly. What saved us is that they were in armored vehicles, so they couldn't roll the windows down. So they knew they were safe. But one of them with a mask on pulled up a, uh, a Draco. It's like a small AK and said, like, like basically, this is, this is what you want. You know, uh, I had my AR pointed upwards at this point. And I remember seeing the driver of the car slowly tried to raise the radio to say something. I said, don't move an inch. 
We didn't raise the radio. They kept screaming at us over the radio, <laughs> like to report back. They gave us a pass. They drove by. We didn't give chase. It's just us. What are you going to do? Uh, we would, we, we, as, as we got more and more experienced and we got more and more supplied and trained and had leadership that knew what the fuck they were doing, we started organizing ourselves in basically small groups and we would patrol the city in groups, move around the city, respond to things. There was an investigative side of it, an intelligence unit. So we'd go after specific targets out there. Um, mm. And just to kind of shed a little bit more light on the force that you're going against. When people say cartel, yeah, it means a lot of different things. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of Americans are like, oh, there is the cartel. Yeah. And El Chapo is in charge of the cartel. Yeah. And that's kind of like the way I think Americans think about it. That's not the case. No, it's a, it's, it's a, so like the Sinaloa cartel is a bunch of small factions allied themselves together that are operating out of a single state. But some of them fight between each other mm -hmm. and some of their interests are different. Mm -hmm. So what you saw in Tijuana back then, uh, early 2000s, was a faction of the Sinaloa cartel led by a man called El Tres Letras, El Teo, and a few lieutenants that he worked with. And he used to work for the Tijuana cartel, the Mariano Fiat cartel, and he flipped sides. And as he did, he took a substantial fraction of that group with him and basically created a divide and a war. This is the richest drug market on the planet. It's worth killing everybody for. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had all of the bodies that they wanted. This is a Tijuana that is coming out of an economic depression with a bunch of kids that have no opportunities. Perfect for them. Mm. So on one side. And on the other side, the old factions of the Ariano Fiat cartel and the and Tijuana cartel still fighting for that territory who had cops on their payroll and the Sinaloa cartel had other cops on the payroll. So you would go to a different parts of the city and the different cops, municipal cops in these areas were working for one or the other cartel. So it was a free for all. It's so complex. Mm -hmm. The politics, who they pay, who's on their side, who's not on their side. So you would go into a place where the uh, municipal police was on the side of one cartel but the army was on the side of another, mm. you know, like that type of insanity. It's, it's, it's still the case, even worse now, but back then it was not as apparent, but you started figuring it out slowly. And they're getting the majority of their drugs from South America, from so Colombia? When I was at, when I was, uh, when I was active, this is early, this is early 2000, 2004, 2016, 17. Uh, the drug of the the main drug of choice in the area was uh, meth, mm. so giant qu quantities of high potency meth were being produced all over the, the country in Mexico. In Mexico, and a lot of it was being trafficked into the U.S., specifically California through Tijuana, for example. Was the production controlled by the cartels as well? Yeah, yeah. Production precursors, all the supply was controlled by different mm. cartel organizations all across the country, and also cocaine. Right. A lot of shit, a shit ton of cocaine, a in, shit ton of cocaine. In Mexico itself. Mexico, Mexico basically receiving it from Colombia, mm. setting up supply and security all the way down in Colombia. Right now, if you go to Colombia, there's like, there's cartel, Mexican cartel presence all the way down there. Wow. Like at, at the source. 
but when when I was active, it wasn't that specific. But we you, you would see bricks directly from Colombia showing up in cars that were about to be loaded up to go into San Diego, for example. Mm. So what you saw was a was this massive force that was there to supply this giant drug market <laughs> across the border. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Tijuana being a geographically advantageous position mm-hmm. because it's so close to the US. Yeah, and also it's a, it's a place where the border wall is really built up and security is built, really built up, but there's an unknown number of drug tunnels underneath them that are supplying any major hit or find of drugs that we would have didn't affect anything as far as prices on the other side of the border. Wow. So whatever we were doing wasn't even putting a dent into the supply. So it was obvious that whatever was being fought over and killed over in that area was making somebody some absurd amount of money. And also there was interest on both sides of that issue that wanted that that to continue. When you say both sides, you mean... Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's American interests were probably there to, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the conflict in Mexico right now, you see the Sinaloa cartel, you see the new generation cartel, and like some of the things that I saw, like after nine eleven and stuff like that. Do you think the U.S. government is going to reach out to the Mexican government to secure its border, or do you think it's going to maybe get involved with cartel interests to secure the border in other ways? Hmm. Who knows? I don't know. It seems that way when you look at kind of the, the politics and the structure of some of these things. I mean, we, we're coming off, uh, when I was active, we I learned about Fast and the Furious through CNN. Right. And only after some of my friends were shot and killed with FN 5.7 pistols that were part of that program that the Bush administration started. Can you describe the Fast and the Furious operations? <clears throat> sure. And, uh, and what exactly those those are? I can't describe them uh, from a U.S. perspective, but what I know about them is that the U.S. basically, through the ATF and through a program that was started under the Bush administration, uh, observed straw purchases, massive straw purchases of guns and civilian-grade weaponry in the United States that then were walked across the border and are supplied to cartels, very specifically the Sinaloa cartel, um, into Mexico. And they were basically let walk through in full uh, participation, uh, in full awareness of the U.S. government. And also it's now come out that the, the Mexican government also knew some, some, of, this, some of these things. So in, 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 for all intents and purposes, the U.S. armed a very uh, a single cartel in Mexico for a period. Right. At the very least was aware of it. It was aware of it and it let things cross and get into their hands until... Enabled it. Yeah, they enabled it until they were found out because one of those guns was used to kill one of their agents, mm. Ryan Terry, mm. um, which is such a wild thing to kind of think about. I raised five, like around four to $5,000 for the Ryan Terry Foundation through a charity, through a charity thing that I did in the U.S. in my current life up here as an instructor. So, and I did it to kind of as a, as a way to say, hey, I raised this money for the Ryan Terry Foundation and because, because of the, these guns, but hey, I, w- I would like to talk about some of my friends that were killed by some of these guns in Mexico and some of the people that were killed down there that you will never learn about. 
Um, one of them was co- going, was coming out of their house uh, with his wife and his kid in the backseat. And two guys showed up with FN57 pistols that were part of that operation, shot both of them, his wife and him, and him died and his daughter lost his arm. And she's still alive somewhere out there. We don't hear about them in the hearings. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Eric Holder is walking around somewhere out there in California, who was not only know, knew about this operation, but you know, basically supported it. No, no, I don't know if that is in, that is in his, the back of his head or his conscious, but it's something that happened. A bunch of people died in Mexico with those guns. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. I understand that aspect, but they were supplied with specialty weapons they didn't have before. You know, FM57 pistols are a high velocity short round that will go through soft body armor, like the ones we were wearing. And do they have a, a motivation on the record for why the U.S. knew about these weapons transfers and enabled them to happen? Can you speculate personally why you think that they would do this? Destabilization. Foreign, horrible American foreign policies. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what the U.S. does and has done in the past. Um, a lot of people in, in the U.S. seem to have this idea of this notion of Mexico having its own issues and its own problems and it should solve its own issues. Well, with recent declassified documents coming out, we've learned that at least four of the, four of the presidents in Mexico's history from the 60s on to modern times were on the CIA's payroll. Hmm including some people that were involved in a massacre after the Olymp- uh, uh, during the Olympics in Mexico that was probably related to its fight against communism. And they killed a shit ton of students in a square. Wow. And he was a CIA employee. Wow. And then further on, other presidents have been revealed to also have been directly on the payroll. So the, US, uh, the U.S.'s influence in Mexico and its foreign policy in Mexico has not been the best. And I think that uh, Fast and the Furious program and some of the shit that went on uh, during that time has been another iteration of that foreign policy. Right. And if the Mexican government and presumably the president of Mexico at the time was aware of Fast and the Furious and aware of these weapons coming in, I can only imagine the reason they would turn a blind eye to it is because they are... Complicit. Complicit and working within so the CIA. Is it, is it, so like people out there that are listen to this, I am on the ground... You know, working. I don't know. Like I, I think I, I was put through polygraph testing every year. Uh, my financials were viewed with a magnifying glass. I was put through psychological evaluations, and I got I had to do these things called confidence confidence exams through a program called C three down there, constantly for years while I was there. And the guy all the way at the top of the security apparatus at a federal level, Martinez Luna, who is currently in prison here in the United States, he was in charge of everything. And he was working for, <laughs> he was working for the cartels wow. at the highest level. And what was the purpose of the polygraph testing? They were trying to see if we were, were up to no good. They were trying to see if we were trustworthy with the information they were providing to us, if we, they were trusted because they, they, we had access to very sensitive shit. So they were trying to keep us honest. But certainly some of the guys you were with flipped and they got bit, right? Uh, they, 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 they would get to a point where the, where the price was met. But would they still take the polygraphs? They would and some of them would fail it. 
And what would happen if you failed it? You would get fired and you would get unemployed and you would figure out other things. But later on in the history of the country, and that one of the big reasons why I had to leave that job is a lot of them collectively sued the federal government for being fired. Wrongfully terminated. Wrongfully terminated. And they determined that the polygraph exam and a lot of the confidence testing didn't fit the criteria for justified firing. So all of a sudden you find yourself in an office with all these known associates of cartels working within our institution are now back with full pay, back pay uh, in the office. And you're like, what are, you, what are you doing here? You spend the last five years collecting unemployment and I've been out in the field getting shot at and risking my life. And, you know, being, just being on the path, you know, just not, not, not fucking up and not doing stupid shit. And right. all of a sudden you're all, all your back and you're this here. Is prodigal son type shit. Like, yeah. So like, what the, what the fuck am I doing? Like, why am I still here? Wow. Uh, That's was frustrating. The, oh, it was devastating, I think uh, for me. Uh, I, I, I did operational work for a long while and then they sent me to work for a governor. Mm -hmm. So I, I worked as a, a head, the head of security for uh, Governor Osuna, great man. I, 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 I've seen politics up close in other parts of my life. Great man, amazing family, honest. Um, is one of the good ones. Um, he was very much a hot potato, you know, target. So that's why they sent us to watch him. Mm -hmm. um, I saw politics through him. In, 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 a, in a way, basically just seeing how things worked. A smart man, uh, came from nothing type dude. Um, what were your preconceptions about politics and how was it shaken? Everybody's corrupt. Everybody's corrupted. Everybody's bad. Everybody, all that shit. It's Mexico. There's no, nobody's on the, on the up and up. Do you think that's just a Mexican thing or is that a, uh, in, in Mexico it's a, it's, I mean, it's, I understand there's corruption up here. You know, mm -hmm. I've seen it. But at least they hide it. <laughs> right. You know, down there you'll see a dude, you know, driving around with a tiger in his backseat. Yeah. Or somebody just blatantly just being corrupt as shit in front of everybody. And um, They kind of hide it here. They kind of hide it here, yeah. You can still buy stocks and things like yeah. that. And you're like, hang on a second. Yeah, I know, I know there's a few people in Congress that are millionaires for, without, any, without any explanation, you know? Yeah. Or some people that can't function with their brains, but somehow they're still being elected for public office. Right, or they have a speaking fee at a thing for a yeah. million dollars for a five-minute speech. Oh, they like, buy art? Of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, but down there, it's like legit, here's the money. This is the cartel boss. Let me take a picture with him. Okay. So that's it's Much just a, it's a different thing down there, I guess. But my experience going, uh, being a bodyguard and working for his security and kind of seeing politics from the inside, um, I saw people trying to make a difference at least for a while. You know, I, I got to see an effort was made. Tijuana was on was the most dangerous city on the planet, and that's my hometown. Yeah. So. And it I, wasn't always that way, and no. that's pretty disheartening to see it was killing me uh so i felt invested in that and also i have family that lives there so I, it's a, it was a whole thing were you ever offered by any cartel bosses or cartel associates to flip it, it that, that's how it works nobody's gonna nobody's gonna offer you directly it was always through other people 
or through people that were working your same unit. There's ha a has a, it happened? Yeah. And, so and how, how would it go? Like take me through uh, that you're, process. You're in leader. You're in a leadership position of some sort, and you're in charge of certain things, uh, certain operations happening somewhere, or you're next to somebody who's in charge, and they say, "Hey." If you move to this part of the city, you mind calling us, calling me? I need to tell some people and it, there's money in there for you. Hmm. Or, hey, you wanna, you wanna go work after work? Hey, you wanna earn some extra money? It's small. It's, um, you climb into, you, they make you jump into their pocket just a little bit. But once you're in there, there's no coming out. It's like a drug. It's it's literally like, hey, do you want to do a little? Like drug dealers would get people hooked on but you know, crack. But if you're a cop, so let's say, hey, Ed, you want to join in on this? Sure. Well, now they have that over you. They own you. And also... For a small fee. For a small fee. So you're working for these guys over here, and now you're their guy. And if somebody in the institution finds out that you're their guy, well, if they're working for somebody else, they say, hey, that guy over there, yeah, there is working for those dudes and helping them. Cool. That's why you see a lot of cops getting killed in their houses or assassinated in the street or like after work, they get shot. It's because they're working for one cartel and the other one doesn't like that or wants to affect that the interest. So they go and kill your guys. The perception is, oh, these cops are getting killed because they're cops. No, uh, some of them might be killed because they're cops in the wrong place in the wrong time. But a lot of them are like, hey, oh, these guys are getting killed because they're working for interest of one side versus the other. And they were found out and they, they got shot. And why do these guys flip or why do they? Money. It's it's purely money. Is there money, ever other interests? Uh, money. Most money. I mean, it's Mexico. Uh, we were we, Some of us were highly paid, but not all of them. What, um, what prevented you from taking on, quote, extra work or working with cartels? I was a punk rock kid. I didn't need shit. I was a minimalist. I didn't need anything. I Like, for me, it's great to be left alone in my house watching, playing PlayStation, not doing shit, you know? Mm. There, was not, there was nothing about the glamorous life. I didn't want a fucking new car. I didn't want any of that shit. I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids, so I didn't have any hunger or need. A lot of these guys that were corrupted had two kids, three kids, a wife that wanted a better house, uh, and they were working in a job. Back then, you couldn't get a credit card as a cop in Mexico. Because who's going to pay off your debt when you get killed? Wow. So you can get credit for a house, for a car. You would have to get it through your wife. You can get credit as a risky. cop. MetLife told us, uh, MetLife ran our, 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 health, uh, our life insurance policy. And I don't know, like one of, their Met, one of their agents told us this. I don't know if it's true or not, but he told us, like, you guys are... Currently, one of the riskiest jobs on the planet. You know, the, the, your life expectancy shit is like, mm. so like, yeah, it's hopeless. Mm. Imagine so, for cops in Mexico aren't unionized. You can't complain about hours there. So there's no extra pay, uh, overtime pay that doesn't exist. You just you go to work till you go to work, and then you sleep two hours and come back. It's dehumanizing. It's you're, you're worse than an orc. Mm. You know. <laughs> That's what sometimes we call ourselves orcs because that's how you feel. Um, not only that, but society spits on you. I mean, to this day, you'll, I'll tell people where I worked and judging the group that I was in by who is there now and some of the history after it just became degraded into this corrupt institution, I'm, I'm spit on. People mm -hmm. talk shit, of, oh, you were part of that. Oh, fuck, fuck, Ed, you're horrible like them. You know, I, 
but there's there were good people there at some point. Yeah, and my, it was, it was, my, my friend was telling me that the state police were particularly brutal yeah. in the time that he was in Tijuana. Yeah, and uh, you know, like the local police were kind of like whatever they'd be paid off. They can kind of negotiate with them, but the the state police were very. It was a it was a gang. Very ruthless. It were you gang. there in the time that it was kind of transitioning? So yeah, so again, people started coming back that were fired. Uh, institutions that were built to keep us trustworthy were taken out mm -hmm. and politics changed. So Leizaola left to Juarez to do the same thing he did for Tijuana. And he succeeded in there. Uh, he, he lowered the crime rate and stuff like that. So he left and left us without kind of direction, I guess. Mm -hmm. So other people came on board, other prior military officers to try and replicate his things, but they weren't him, you know? So but slowly but surely things degraded. Um, people come on, again, people start getting really corrupted. You know, there was nobody cleaning things up from the inside anymore. There was no fear. And yes, it turned into a, if, if, he's, if uh, your friend is talking about the brutality of it, he probably lived through the, uh, a 2012 era of it when it started degrading into what it then turned into mm. um yeah it's 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 the brutality that the, the 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 fear of them now is because you know again the they are there's no more filters there there's no more eyes inside it's just free for all mm -hmm. and what happens with uh with police police units police groups and politics in general Every five years, the federal government changes and everything changes. Names change, uniforms change, badges change. Uh, they just call it a different thing, you know? But what doesn't but, change? Well, I mean, anything that worked in the previous administration that was celebrated by the people gets vilified. So one day we're being thanked and, and, uh, and we're being told like, hey, thank you for like bringing back peace to the city that like, great that you that Tijuana is no longer on the most dangerous cities list. You can go out at night again and, and have fun, drink and shit like that, not worried about getting abducted or shot up. But with the peace comes, well, now we don't need you. Or now you're, you're, you're too brutal. We don't need this military, militarized police anymore. You need to tone it down now. Uh, now you're torturers. Now you're evil murderous people like mm. you we don't need that you're you're the, the you're villains again because you're not needed anymore right and while and, there's so much turnover and you know change with the police the cartels are never changing no no they're they're they're, they're well they're they're changing in their tactics so like when i was active they were they would dress like police officers and clone units and shit like that mm -hmm. but in terms uh, of leadership yeah well yeah in terms of leadership you you would see Every now and then they would change too, but uh, but there was always I mean as far as the Sinaloa law cartel, there's always there's always been one specific head on their end. So El Mayo Zambada has been there forever. So yeah, there's no change there. But on our side, it's a chicken not only without a head, but a head it, like it, they put a different head on it every five years, and yeah. it uh, the brain goes with it. You know. Um, when did you start to lose faith in the program? What's up, guys? We're going to take a break from this conversation because you need to take the bad out of your habits. Yeah. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You're out with the boys, 2 a.m., you're drinking. 
throwing down a couple cold ones. Who knows? Maybe some Bud Lights, maybe some Tall Boys, if you know what I'm saying. And you're doing a couple more, and you're hanging out outside the bar, and all of a sudden someone pulls out a bad habit. You know what I'm talking about. One of those little good ones. You know what I mean? They pull out one of these little skinny boys. And you're like, you know what? Maybe I'll take a hit. Maybe I'll try it out. And that is your mistake. You do that Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all of a sudden you're hooked, and that is a bad habit. I'm telling you, if you know me, I don't like to put artificial stuff in my body. I don't like to put crap into my body. I'm trying to be as health conscious as I can, and that's why... I got one of these. Yes. Maybe you've never seen it before. Maybe you have one in your hand right now. This is called a Fume. It's an award-winning device that changed my life. With Fume, I don't have to change my habit. I can just take the bad out of the habit. Instead of electronics, it's completely natural. Instead of vapor, it's using flavored air. Yes, it has a little essential oil cartridge right here that goes inside the Fume, and you are just breathing in crisp, cool flavored air. This is actually the mint flavor. This is the one I like. And then instead of harmful chemicals, it's all natural, delicious flavors. I'm telling you, man, it is a nice, sleek design. It's something that's nice to like fidget with. Listen to this right here, baby. Yeah, I'm doing that all day. Even if I'm not taking a puff of this thing, I'm just spinning it. I love that. So it's sleek. It's cool. It looks cool. It's super discreet. You can travel with it. You can go anywhere in the world with it. I'm telling you around the studio, we're hitting these things. It's just fun. And it's a good way to keep the habit but just take the bad out of it. You know what I mean? I know what you're thinking. You're like, flavored air, what does that even mean? And then I went, and I went, oh, okay, I get it. I completely get it. I like essential oils. I always use essential oils before I sleep. And with fume, especially this mint cartridge, it's just a refreshing deep breath that makes me feel calm, cool, collected, takes my anxiety away. It's awesome. So here's what I want you to do. If you're interested in joining over the 100,000 customers that have taken the bad out of their habit, I want you to go to try fume. That's T-R-Y-F-U-M. Dot com and use the code Gagnon, G-A-G, and I want you to check out the Journey Pack. If you use the code Gagnon when you check out the Journey Pack, the Journey Pack is going to give you everything you need to get started on your journey of taking the bad out of your habits. Stop putting harmful chemicals into your body. Try to be a little more health conscious, especially if you're putting down brews, right? You don't want to just double up. So you can go to Trifume, T-R-Y-F-U-M, use the code Gagnon, G-A-G-N-O-N, for 10% off your order today. Now let's get back to the episode. As soon as Lee's all on the left. Uh, that I leadership goes. The leadership went, so that I didn't see any clear leadership. I saw a few other people that were still doing the holding out, basically. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them started to leave. Uh, I got a lot of training, and I was very specialized. I remember seeing True Detective and somebody saying, uh, "Be careful what you get good at." You know, it's like I got we, we got really good at a specific thing, and a lot of them figured that they could make more money either working for one side or the other or going into the private sector. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the talent started leaving. That's why we started noticing. An institution that was respected and was pretty great nationally started turning into what it is now. And people talk about the state police of Tijuana, they're horrible, right? So I started seeing that being lost. Mm. Leadership changed when I was, when I was so I was, I worked for the governor as the head of security for the governor for, uh, for a period and that was great. Uh, then I was back on the street, operational. And in, 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 in the office of the director was somebody that was completely compromised. Um, I still had vestiges of what was before and I worked, we worked together and we try to keep shit, you know, normalized, I guess, and keep on the path. And then somebody basically changed everything and pulled me in one, one day and asked me, do you want to play ball with us? 
And I was like, what do you mean us? Like, this, this, this is changing. This is how we're going to work. How about it, Ed? And people who are still there probably, you know, won't let me lie about this. I said, sure. I went out of the office, printed out my resignation there and then, took a big trash bag from the service area, put my vest, radio, everything. I handed in my MP5 and the magazines, my gun, everything. That same day, I resigned. I just realized that there's no, no fucking way I could stay here. Wow. Um, it was a few weeks after my mother died. Also, that was like a, it was like everything happened at once. Mm. Um, my mother was psychiatric for years, like psychiatric issues, and it, they got really bad towards the end. So I was not only taking care of a two-year-old and trying to hold a marriage together that was, I, I, there's no way I could save it. Doomed. Um, but my mom left uh, after a year and a half of torturous psychiatric, I had to contain her. She would wander off or she would go violent. Um, while that was going on at home, I also was struggling with my marriage and I also was struggling with work. And I was going on doing horrible shit, you know, that all of it was like compiled. Um, um, my, uh, my ex-wife was American. My daughter was American. It's Tijuana, mm -hmm. the relationship. And I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to immigrate. I like wanted to see things through. But I, just, I had no choice. My mom left. They gave me two days off. Wow. So, you know, I get, rage started growing inside of me. Yeah, of course. Um, so I left that, that day and I crossed the border uh, with my kid next to me, two-year-old. There's a picture of me the, f the first day I'm there. She's hugging my head. <laughs> Um, nothing, uh, just, uh, some, some money in my pocket, you know, um, relationships that I created and, de uh, and, 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 and developed during my time active on the U S side. I was, since I have clear English and I worked a lot of liaison work with people in, from the U S that would go down there and it would talk or cross-trained with a lot of people, shared a bunch of information from both sides of the border. I already had like a, an anonymous blog that I would run. Mm-hmm. I would go by Edward Seven on on Tumblr. Mm. So I would share pictures of stuff that I would see, cartel tactics. One of the first drug mule drones found in Tijuana. I took a picture of it, posted it up on my blog. Wow! So it was it was posting up some stuff that was kind of wild for people. Real cutting edge forefront shit. Yeah, I mean this this is there was no cartel reporting. There's none of that shit back then. It was like just random shit you would find online. But I was an English speaker that could write in English that was speaking to an American audience, report, not reporting, but just showcasing some of the stuff that I would see. Mm -hmm. And some of it was picked up by media and some of it was shared and stuff like that. By this point, I, I was uh, trying to figure out, you know, what my next move was and I didn't, I didn't know. Did you have a visa? Yeah. Okay. I did. Yeah. I had a visa. I could, I, but again, I was, I was, uh, I didn't want to immigrate, you know, it was 
they were my intention. And then I found myself in this situation where so I quit this job. What else can I do? What else can I do mm-hmm. in Mexico? Right. Uh, people that need to understand that if you're a cop in Mexico and if you quit and or are fired from an institution, you can't be hired by on by any other institution unless that you have some sort of connection. Why? It's It was part of the law back then. Oh, really? So if you want to be in the state police or the federal police, the first thing they ask you, have you ever been part of another police institution? And if you say yes, you're denied. Automatic. So idiotic. Right. And it created a shit ton of people that the cartels then hired. Um, oh, wow. So there's former a shit sta- ton. state police that are just straight into the cartel. A shit ton. Military, state, federal police that are all working now on the other side. Yeah. Wow. Working within their specialized positions. Security. You name it. I mean, I, I, like, I, I train, I train the U.S. government in, in different ways. I, I get hired by U.S. government, federal agencies, and military forces. And there's people out there might listen to this that can look up on my Instagram account or some of the social media that I post up, and or some of the people that have written about some of the training that I do. They're surprised by the sophistication and they're shocked by the how unknown it is. Like, where where did that, where'd you learn all this shit, Ed? Through work. And also some of you guys trained us to wow. do this work in Mexico. And I'm just coming back with the experience. Mm. Uh, where, where, where are the rest of you guys? Everywhere. I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, what are some of the, uh, the riskiest missions that you did? And what was the closest you say you had ever been to death? I mean, it's. It was it was every, it was it was a daily thing, you know. We were getting shootouts, uh, uh, going into horrible shit. Uh, I was I was there for one of the the riots at the Tijuana prison, um, and I've been through a lot of shit before that, and uh, I don't I don't want to talk about those, uh, but I think that one was interesting because of. The chaos and what it represented. It's the so, so the Tijuana prison. If, if anybody's ever seen Get the Gringo with Mel Gibson, it's a basically a fictional picture a movie about a Tijuana prison. It's like a prison. The, the, the prison in Tijuana used to be called El Pueblito. There was like a town inside of it with video stores and Chinese food and pizza, and people would live in the prison with their families and shit like that. It was corrupt. It was a symbol of the corruption of Tijuana and at some point they figured it out and they tore it all down and they like legit started enforcing shit in there but it's still it's Mexico it's prison they figured out ways of corrupting it uh there was a giant riot that erupted there uh and if you see the prison it's in the middle of the urban center of Tijuana so the riot started, the municipal police were called, the military, like it was all hands on deck to contain this prison because if they, all of these fuckers break out, it's going to be chaos all over the city. Um, so I got there uh, and it was an inferno. Yeah. People being burned inside of the prison. You can smell it on the outside. Shooting going on from inside the prison to the outside, from the outside to the inside. The family members of the 
prisoners riding outside, you know, nobody really in control. It was the closest I've ever been to like an apocalypse, I think, of a sort. Uh, women outside crying for their family members on the inside and also clawing and trying to kill you while you're trying to contain people trying to get out of it. And what started this riot? Internal cartel politics, people trying to figure out how to make a massive breakout to hide the fact they're going to break out a few key people and just people taking advantage of it and turning it into a whole scenario. And how long did it go on for? It was two nights uh, that it had that it flared up, uh, but the, la the, the 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 biggest one was when it was like during the day that led into the night, and the families rioted on the outside. There's still video on YouTube of it. Um, in one of the videos, the uh, head of the municipal police of Tijuana shows up and says, "Hey, calm down, calm down. They're using less lethal rounds. Calm down." And the family members come over with a bunch of spent 308s and two to three rounds. And the feedback, everybody was shooting inside and out. It was chaos. It's like, this, this is, these aren't Leslie, throw them at them, you know? It was, it was chaos. Um, in the midst of all that, though, there was a, there was a, I was, I was next to a Humvee uh, that the army had, and they had a, like a 50 cal on top of it. I don't know what that was. And, uh, I was, I felt pretty safe there, right? All these army guys there. And I knew some of them. So this is a good place to hide and wait to see and observe here. And all of the rocks in the world started falling on us from the sky. These people are throwing rocks at us. And one of them let off several rounds of his rifle next to me, a G3 rifle. It's big battle rifles that the army used to carry down there. Um, I was on the radio observing, doing my deal, basically reporting back to the people that I were in charge of me, uh, what was going on, like basically live reporting shit for the people that were in charge. Um, one of those around, so when it's excitement, the, the full auto rifle went really close, really close to basically blowing the top of my head off. And I was in the process of getting married. I like trying to figure that out, trying to find new parts of my life. I had something to lose there and then. So I think that was a scary, close thing to me. I started to not want it. I started to not want to die. And it fucked with me. Mm. And I was like, I want to get married. I'm looking towards this relationship that I have now. And all of a sudden I'm there. And this is the first time I realized, I, hey, maybe I'm not all in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's scary. Yeah, maybe I'm not all in. This fuel that you had throughout your whole life in these very high stress, tense positions, all of a sudden there's a, there's a gap. There's a, there's a uh, weak point. Yeah, there's a, a, it's vulnerability. Yeah. And then... And then my daughter was born, you know, uh, she's a gift. She's like biggest gift in my life. But, uh, she, she took, uh, she took suicide off the table immediately. Like there's, there's no way, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so yeah, so when I think 
you know, all the risky shit I did and all that, that stuff and all the events that I was around, that one was horrifying as far as the, the just the lack of control, the lack of, it was chaos. And it just told me like, it doesn't matter how much of an effort I do. It doesn't matter how well trained I am. It doesn't matter how much I'm professionalized. None of this is going to change the reality of where I am. These, this is just something that needs to play out completely independent of me. There's no way, there's nothing we can do. This is just, this is just the way things are. This is too big. This is larger than I am. And people are responsible on both sides and everybody's, it's free for all. Why am I, why am I willing to sacrifice my life for this? I just, I, that's when the, I started questioning it, you know. Did you start to empathize with any of the cartel members? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the uh, uh, there was a, one of the, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a rapper who was a friend of mine, Conejo. Uh, if people have watched that uh, tax collector movie, he's the villain in there. It's like he shows up at this new generation cartel member and you know challenges the 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 LA uh, the LA uh, Mexican mafia people. It's a whole it's it's a cool movie, great movie, directed directed by David Ayer, great movie. Um, he was arrested on murder charges in Tijuana when I was active. Um, by the by the state police and i was around for that arrest so he had a pending charge in the u.s and he was they wanted to extradite him when he was arrested he fit the bill of somebody you would parade in front of the cameras you know if you know conejo like i know him now as a friend but back then you know you see him he's like He's, he uses the picture of his uh, that uh, at the office that we took of him as uh, for his albums, which is great. And it's beautiful. But uh, when he was arrested, he was arrested at his house. Set up surveillance on him. They tracked him down. He was not doing good things, you know. Probably he was he was he was he was working in Mexico. Um. His family was around for his arrest, so that was hard for him, his kid. So I empathize with that. Um, since I was a, since I could speak conversational and clear English, I listened to some of the conversations he was having and speaking all throughout his arrest. That was like my function. Mm. Uh, they stripped his T-shirt off for the picture so they could see the tattoos. There's a dead end tattoo on him. It's cool, you know. But they wanted to basically parade him in front of the press. And I know that was hard for him. To and be I, used. I empathize. Even though, like, whatever, like, you could call him whatever you wanted. Like, he was this, he was that, and them and us. It was, I can empathize a little bit. Um, and I observed it. And I was in the periphery of that. And I saw him. He saw me. And then he was extradited and he was gone. And I was continuing on my path and we just completely different life paths. And I resigned. I went to the U.S. Uh, I was started looking for my opportunities and work as soon as I got here, I started working, you know, started figuring things out. Went through my immigration process during the Trump, when Trump was elected, which was basically made my immigration process not easy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, somewhere along the lines, I met uh, director David Ayer. Amazing guy. Conversation, deep conversations with that. He, he's the one that inspired me to go on the path of sobriety because he's sober too. So I remember meeting him after I was on Rogan and got a little bit known. He like, we, we just talked, had a conversation. And he's like, hey, think about stop, don't drink anymore. It'll help. Sobriety will help. It's like, oh, somebody I respect told me that. And I started on the path. Uh, at some point he was like, Hey, I'm coming down to Tijuana. You should meet this guy that I know. And it's like, Oh, sure. And I saw him like, that's Conejo. Like, I know him. We've been in the same room before. And all of a sudden I find myself in the surreal place where it's, you know, we're going to get tacos with David and Conejo's there and we're talking about stories of Tijuana and like you were here for this yeah I was here for that I was we were over here it's like oh and you and we started connecting be like and then it dawned on us if we were at one point we were not on opposite sides and now we're hanging out <laughs> eating tacos laughing sharing stories in America yeah in, in America and, and in Tijuana. Oh, really? Yeah, because he's completely exonerated of all the, he, 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 they, they exonerated him of all charges. And we're living this weird afterlife. He's an actor now, he's a musician, great. Uh, his spiritual life is very you know, present in his life, just like mine is. Uh, he has a daughter, I have a daughter. And it, it's th then it dawned on me like, none of it mattered. Like all the work we did, all the fucking shit we did, all the blood, all the effort, all of it. And we're both on opposite sides of shit. And now we're just hanging out and showing up for each other, you know? Does he feel the same way that yeah. it, it didn't matter? Like, uh, well, it's, it mattered because we're here now for our kids. Mm -hmm. I think that's the conclusion we got. Both of us got like, we were so committed to that in life but now we're on the other side of it and now we're committed to this one mm. and in the past one we were enemies and in this one he calls me and i show up that's wild that was a wild ride to get to, to kind of to encounter with him yeah empathy i started seeing and realizing that these people and the training that i had and the way that we were programmed was us versus them, mugrosos, malandros, all the bad words, all the derogatory words, but like, wait, we grew up with some of these people. You know, hey, these, they, they, they uh, when they get killed, they do the funerary service here. When we get killed, funerary service over here. And we have a truce because we're burying people, so chill out. They go to the same places to eat sometimes. One uh, like I, I have when I when I came to the U.S. I was hosted by an amazing family during my immigration process. Uh, a Navy SEAL uh, by the name of Dan Stanchfield hosted me during my immigration process. My brother, I love him. I owe him my life. And his wife Kelly, she's an actress. Uh, uh, she was uh, she was Nip Tuck. She was uh, Kimber Nip Tuck. That she, they were my host family. Um, they they uh, kept me safe and 
figure it out. Like they, they, they were there through the whole process of me figuring out my citizenship and just the process of being here. Um, it was, it was, it was the, the, the being in Mexico, being in charge of 80 people and having radios and cell phones and grenade launchers and rifles and all this stuff. And all of a sudden I'm in a avocado orchard in the middle of Southern California and everything's quiet. Yeah. And everything's, and I'm, nobody's calling me. And all these people that I would die and kill for are out there somewhere, just lost to my perception. And I'm now have to figure out what I'm going to do next. You know, um, they were great. They, uh, they basically started me off on this process of figuring out what I'm going to do with it. And they were instrumental in saying, well, what do you, what do you have to offer? Nothing. What do I have to offer? I'm very good at a few things, but what do I have to offer? But they made me figure it out. You know, I have experience. I can sell it. How? Train people how to do and survive some of the environments that you worked in. Okay. Mm. Um, use the experience that you had to help others in different ways. So I do, uh, I started figuring out how to put all of this in the context of a training experience for people. Uh, hey, I'm going to travel with my family to this weird country. What do I need to know about operating and working in a place like that that is unfriendly and you don't have the tools that you would want? Well, I did that every day in my life sometimes. So I could, I could sit down and tell you that right. and show you that from a perspective of experience. Do you remember the first day that you were taken out of this heightened, anxious state? What's up, guys? We're going to take a break really quick because you need an attorney. That's right. You might have got rear-ended. Maybe you slipped, maybe you fell, maybe you got hit by a car while you were riding your bicycle down the street. That happened to me. And I was so frustrated because I had to go online and I searched attorney in my area and a hundred things came up and I couldn't figure out who was real, who was shady, who's a good guy, who's a bad guy. And then anytime I talked to someone, it took so long to go back and forth just to submit my claim. And then on top of that, they had all these fees and they tried to nickel and dime me before they even took my case. It was infuriating. I chose just to do nothing. That's not what you should do because finding an attorney can be very hard. But you know what's not hard? Finding an attorney is hard, but hiring Morgan & Morgan is easy. Yes, Morgan & Morgan is America's largest personal injury law firm. They have over 100 offices nationwide and over 800 attorneys waiting to hear from you. So there's two things that I'm going to tell you that's great about Morgan & Morgan. Submitting a claim has never been easier. Eight clicks or less. It's like ordering something on Amazon or like Uber Eats or something like that. From your couch, you can submit a claim if you want to, and they can check it out. No charge just to see your claim. The second thing, their fee is free unless they win your case. That's right. You don't spend a dime unless they win your case. Their interest is your interest. That's right. So I'm just saying, if you're ever injured, you could check out Morgan and Morgan. And the way to do that is to go to forthepeople.com. That's F-O-R thepeople.com slash Gagnon. That's correct. G-A-G-N-O-N. Or you can dial pound law from your cell phone. That's pound 529. This is a paid advertisement. I'm just saying, if anything bad ever happens to you, heaven forbid, these are the guys you could check out. They're good guys. Stop blowing all your stacks with these other attorneys. Let's get back to the show. Yeah. yeah. Like you're in this world for basically your entire life that is just like tension, anxiety, stress, fight or flight. Yeah. Every single moment is just high alert. Yeah. And that is exhausting to live in. Yeah. And then you get out of it, come to the U.S., and now you're in this, you know, Avocado orchard. Avocado orchard. 
is it peacefulness? Are you able to turn it off? Uh, Did you ever feel what? So I'm I'm st I'm still an alcoholic at, at this point. Mm -hmm. My marriage is suffering. So we're going. I cheat again. I don't want to have people like think that I'm. I I I was responsible for my marriage failing. I didn't do anything. Uh, I didn't do anything to cause it, but I was, I was, I was absent. I was not there, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so it was already kind of started to crumble, but I was trying to basically do the best for my kid. So uh, the, yeah, the, I remember having a moment where I was getting really drunk. <laughs> In this avocado orchard, I discovered uh, craft beers <laughs> when I crossed the border. Yeah. I remember going to the store the first night to shop for groceries uh, and going to this market and experiencing a whole aisle of craft beers. Yeah. And I just wanted some tecate roja. You know, yeah, this yeah. was the red tecates. And all of a sudden, I, I find myself in this aisle of beers and I buy two bottles of a, of a beer, craft beer called, called Rasputin beer. Yeah. That has a very high alcohol content percentage. And do you know you're an alcoholic at this time? No. Still not aware? No, no. I don't. I didn't know I had a problem. I didn't know it was like a thing. So I remember buying those bottles and thinking, I'm going to drink two of them. I drank four. And I had alcohol poisoning because it was too much. Um, I, as I was going through the process of figuring out my American experience, I would go to a Circle K and buy Foster's cans, the oil cans. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember buying, I would go to that specific Circle K and I would just grab three of them to drink at night, fall asleep, uh, hung over for a whole day and then on the, uh, the third day I would go back and buy them. One day I went into that same store and the line where all the beers were, was empty, where all the uh, Foster's beer cans was empty. So I went over and I asked uh, the lady at the cashier, like, do you have any more Foster's uh, beer cans? And she was on the phone and annoyed. She said, no, you finished them all. And I felt like shit. I felt like shit. Uh, that was like a first crack, I think. I felt like, she, like I felt disgusted with myself. Um, That's when you started to realize, like, oh, this is not normal. It's a problem, maybe. You know, uh, was your was your wife at the time saying anything about your drinking? Yeah, she was. He was screaming at me to change. I just blocked it out. I wasn't ready. How uh, did the disassociation manifest in the relationship? Uh, I didn't talk about my shit. I avoided conflict. I wanted to keep everything leveled. I wanted safety there. And I didn't work through shit. I didn't share, like, I didn't share this with her. She didn't know. Well, not, not anybody, most people didn't know about the shit that I went through. It was this mystery. Were you asking about her or were you just completely numb? I was numb. I was numb. And my absence, you know, basically distanced us. Of course. You're just like a roommate, basically. Yeah. Like. And and uh, I, I hit the ground running. You know, I'm an immigrant and I 
uh, I got this opportunity and I got my green card and I have this amazing host family that's doing some amazing things to try and set me on the path. I start getting hired to train people. I, my, I'm being known more. I get quoted by certain news agencies and I'm being very successful. And I, and I go on Rogan. Keeps, he follows my Instagram account. He's a fan. Some shit happens. And then all of a sudden, I didn't know what that was. He reaches out to you? Yeah. DMs me on Instagram. But you mind you, I am oblivious to what that means. It's like, I don't, I don't, I didn't, I didn't watch it. I didn't understand the cultural significance of it. Had you ever done a podcast before then? No, 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 never. Wow. So, so all of a sudden I'm, um, I'm in LA. Uh, the door opens. There's a Navy SEAL guy there who's a friend of mine who knows me. He's like, what are you doing here? I think I'm about to get into conversation. Oh, I'm not even going to do you the service of tertiary you, good sir. Uh, I don't have anything with me. I know, I know what you teach. I, I know. I don't have. That. It was a, it was a, just a fun interaction. And I walk in there, and there's Joe. And we sit down and have a conversation. But I, I, for me, it was like, ah, cool. I was, I was on this thing, and it's cool to say, and it's probably going to help me a bit. It exploded. It, it was like my phone, uh, email was full. Uh, opportunity arrived, you know, work, purpose, new purpose. Like, holy shit. What I talked about resonated with a bunch of people. Like uh, I'm speaking of a reality that nobody has heard about from somebody like me from Mexico that went through it. Uh, I'm a veteran of the drug war, <laughs> mm. right? That aspect of it. I'm speaking for all my friends that died during the process that didn't get here. And I'm somehow I'm a mouthpiece for a lot of these people. You know, I am a villain in Mexico for a lot of people because of where I worked. But here I'm a weird story that I can share without that. And as that was happening, my marriage ended. So everything arrived and everything left. And it was like. Was that your biggest moment of triumph? It, it, I didn't understand. So I didn't view it as triumph, but I viewed it as, oh, this is a new responsibility. And it's like, I've, if, if anything, people know me, I, I, I don't like freedom. I, it's, I, I view true freedom for me as responsibility. If you have responsibility, free, you know, if you have responsibility, you're free to, to live life. So I just had this giant responsibility and, and at the same time, my marriage ended and it was devastating for me. Basically my victory was that, to have a marriage and to have a kid, to have a family, that was my victory. And all of a sudden I find myself with this other weird victory, you know, and my true victory, collapses and is fragmented so it's almost like shit i can't even find peace here you know just how long were you married for about eight years and your did your parents go to the wedding yeah my mom my mom was there for a bit you know she was not well 
I, I, I organized the wedding, the ceremony. Uh, a judge from the U.S. that I knew came down to marry us in Tijuana. Uh, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful. I, 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 uh, I got. It was. I, I did. A, I, I did my best to make it a, a beautiful experience for both of us. Like I wrote my own vows and all that. You know, mm-hmm. Somewhere there's a video of it. Um, it was a great. It was a great moment for me. It's like probably. I think that and the birth of my uh, of my daughter were my best moments. And your parents, they met your daughter as well. Yeah, my mom got to see my daughter. Yeah, my mom got to see her. Was your mom proud? Oh yeah, through everything she was going going on inside of her, would go away when she would see my kid. It was just, it was, she made it, you know. She got to see me have a kid, which I was, I and I didn't I didn't perceive this, but I, later on it dawned on me. Uh, she she didn't have faith in me <laughs> that I was going to be able to have that, and she got to, it, she got to see her. My daughter doesn't remember her, but. She got to, uh, my mom got to meet her. She got to meet that part of me. And she left. Uh, before she died, she actually had me take a few pictures with her, which is, I don't have a lot of pictures of them together because I was all over the place back then. But she, I, I have a few pictures the day before she died of her and my daughter. Um, so yeah, my, my, my victory was I got married. That's because my parents were married and they stayed married till one of them died. So I view that as a victory for them. Of course. And all of a sudden my mind ends because of, and I take responsibility for it, you know, like everything in my life. It was, it was because of some of the, we both had issues, but you know, I I take responsibility for it. So do you think through your marriage and the birth of your daughter, you got, what you what you sought from your mom? I, I, yeah, I thought I, that's I, 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 that's what I, yeah, that was it. But it ended, and I leaned into the alcoholism even more. At that, I was really bad then, and I was traveling across the country doing the training that I do, and. You know, students out there that have that have been through that that have gone through some of these training exercises and programs know what they are. They're highly stressful, and there's a lot of emotions that have come out when people are trying to not only construct the tools of their liberation, but actually simulating some of these things for them so they can actually go through the experience in a control setting of what it would feel like to be abducted or be placed in a home invasion scenario or human trafficking and all these things and how people figure out ways out, how to cut through this, how to open up handcuffs, how to hide things, how to construct things. It's very emotional for people. And for me too, it's triggering because I'm teaching something that I went through. And so it's fucking triggering for me. Yeah. So after everybody would thank me at the end of the day for some of the life-changing shit that I just showed them, now I was going back to my hotel room alone without anybody to talk to and no support network and drinking myself to sleep over and over again every weekend. Um, it, you know, it was a, a whole process. And then how do you quit alcohol? Um, I... Uh, I find myself in another relationship with somebody and it was chaotic, very chaotic. 
um, I wasn't ready for it. And I, it was just bad, you know. Uh, while I'm trying to deal with that, I'm also drinking heavily. Um, I had some opportunities, uh, started working, figuring things out. I was more known, so I just... I got these insane opportunities, you know, to speak to Senate committees and uh, be quoted for uh, for a bunch of news uh, outlets and to be on other podcasts and working Hollywood as a advisor and just all these insane opportunities. And I'm just a, a walking zombie of alcoholism. Uh, I me I meet with David Ayer, like I, I go to his office. Great guy, deep deep guy deep guy uh insane humanity in him serious though <laughs> and after a conversation i said i said uh i offered to give him like a bottle of tequila or something like that he says no i don't drink i'm sober and he says something along the lines of from the looks of it you probably need to visit that too and it, it clicks in my mind uh i get really drunk after a bad situation with my with the woman I was in a relationship with back then and my daughter quietly comes over to me and says are you sad dad I say yeah she she's probably 5 and in the clearest voice coming out of a, a kid of that age she says she probably should I don't think you should drink anymore. Uh, I wasn't smart about it, though, from sobriety. Uh, stopping, uh, leaving alcohol is one of the only some, one of the only drugs that will kill you. Right. And knowing who I am and what I've done, I was going to take the fucking easy way out. So I um, I called in a few favors, and I have a, some friends that had a giant cattle ranch somewhere, and they said if you ever need to hide anywhere, Ed, you have a you have a place here. But they, they weren't talking; they were probably talking about hiding from danger or some shit like that. I called them and say, hey, can I can I come out there? I need to isolate myself for for a month. So sure, come out. Go out there, it's middle of fucking nowhere. Uh, it's a small community. Uh, I get there and uh, I give them money because I'm I, I'm I don't want to freeload, so I give them some cash uh, to take care of certain needs that they had in this community, and they appreciated the shit out of it. You know, thank you. Then he stood me up in front of everybody in the community and said, hey, this is Ed. He's an alcoholic. He's not to be you know, fed any alcohol or nobody give him anything. If he asks for it, begs for it, don't give him shit. And he turned to me and said, Ed, I've been through it myself. We got you. But we're not going to let you get away with shit here. So figure it out. Thank you. Uh, I locked myself into this little cabin. It was uh, looking into the desert. Purple skies. But they weren't purple. There was hallucinations. 
I was going through withdrawals. Uh, it's, then it dawned on me that I realized that oh, it's, I've been three days without drinking, and it's. Uh, I didn't take any medication. You're supposed to see a doctor. Your heart's fucking in danger. I didn't do shit. Um, I remember falling asleep on the bed and waking up uh, on a corner on the opposite side of the room in a ball. Uh, vivid dreams. You can't escape from them anymore. Sobriety. Uh, sobriety was a uh, alcoholism was a blanket for your subconscious. So you're like you're not dealing with shit. It's almost like a like, pause button. It's a pause button. You're not processing shit. And all of a sudden now you're processing everything from your 20s all the way to your, you know, late 30s. Uh, like a, so my dreams were like waking life hallucinations and fevers. That's where I, I currently write these short form stories I call fever dreams and that's that's where it comes from these sweat filled hell hallucinations of going through that sobriety process uh I was too stuck into my into my own bullshit going through that that I didn't realize that the community that I was in was watching out for me I remember one day I tried to open the door and I couldn't open it it's like shit they locked me in is one of the guys sleeping in a sleeping bag outside my door taking care of me. It took a month and I came back. Clear headed. And uh, when you when you when you talk about that, you know, the you think you're gonna, oh, all I need to do is just get sober. And I'm there. Fuck no. It's like a uh it's like going to an abandoned house that nobody's been living in there and you see all the uh mail stuff in the mailbox and all the uh notifications of foreclosure and shit like that. You realize the extent of your absence and the damage that your absence has done to your life, health wise. Uh relationships. I thought my relationship with my daughter was great. It was it wasn't. You know? My relationship with the women was horrible. <laughs> so I had to fix it. Uh, and uh, I, uh, somebody gave me a, a tarot deck. Yeah. And uh, in the tarot deck, there was, a, there was a, a, an image of the hanged man. And uh, that struck back to my first gig working, cutting people off bridges. And I realized that I was the guy hanging on the bridge. I was precariously hanging from that bridge, hoping that my mother would look at me and rescue me or hoping that some woman would come into my life and do that for me. Or if I rescue somebody of, of their own shit, they'll, they'll treat me the same because I'm a child of abandonment. So for the longest period, I thought that my alcoholism and all that shit was related to my PTSD. And some of the shit that I went through when I was working. It's like I went through a lot of horrible shit. You know, horrible shit. But I thought that was the origin. And then it just dawned. Everything just started clicking. And I figured it was because of my brother dying. And basically my security being taken away from me at 13. That just made me into this feral survivalist. 
that was capable of withstanding some shit that other people couldn't. That's what made me, that's, that was my superpower. Mm. <laughs> Abandonment. Yeah. Um, Being able to withstand things is not always a good thing. Yeah, but I, that's, that's the only way I thought to bring value to me. I, I, that's the only th thing that I thought it was, was a value to, uh, about, that I could give people, that I was. But your toughness can almost be uh, counterintuitive in a sense. Like in, you see it in boxing or fighting, you know, yeah. having a good chin can kind of be dangerous. Yeah. You take way more damage. You take yeah. way more punches so because I, you can withstand it. I took all of the damage, you know. What motivated you in the time when you were on the ranch getting sober? My daughter. Thinking of her. Yeah. Uh, it dawned on me that I'm painfully struggling with abandonment and I'm walking towards the same destiny. I'm going to repeat history. Um, while I was there, I was reading a bunch of stuff that friends would send me and I learned about generational curses. And it dawned on me. I had this moment of enlightenment. <laughs> um, I couldn't reconcile my mother being so amazing and so beautiful and so such a powerful force in my life and then leaving. And, and then I started like thinking about it. Like my mom didn't have a father in her life. She grew up in a, in a home that's pretty bad conditions, you know. One of her sisters was raped because no father figure, perfect victims, you know. Um, she raised her two sisters since she was like 12 or some shit like that. Uh, no father figure in her life. And I never understood why my mom was such a badass or why she was so powerful and masculine in a way around me and what the lessons were that she was trying to provide me. Um, when, when she would be called to places to like inject somebody or to deal with some shit, I would hold a flashlight for her. Even though I was scared and nervous, she would hold me steady. She would explain to me why that was important. She was preparing me to be the father that she didn't have so that her granddaughter could enjoy that. And I was going to fuck it up. So I had to, I had to stop. Did you have photos of her? Yeah. Yeah, I had a, a single one. Still haven't. Uh, I was carrying around moleskin notebooks because I have severe ADHD <laughs> because of my trauma. So I have to write everything down. And in that notebook, she's always there. Yeah. That's, uh, it, uh, it, it put me on a path. Sobriety is the start. It's not the ending. I thought it was like, hey, this is going to be the conclusion. Happy ending, balloons at the end. I did it. Fuck no. First year of sobriety, clarity. And then you see the extent of the damage. Uh, yeah. I made a promise for myself that when I would turn 41, that I would be in a better place. That was August. Um, I went through two years of intense therapy post-traumatic, family, parenting. Uh, I educated myself. I went, to, I went to a few processes of trying to figure things out. I went through a spiritual path. You know, I, discovered, I rediscovered that uh, about me, my, my faith. What's your perspective on God now? Uh, 
Well, he's not a dude. <laughs> uh, for me, I think I rediscovered uh, my spirituality through the Virgin of Guadalupe and on what she represents. Uh, a mother, a uh, source. Uh, I also rediscovered the veneration of the Holy Death and Santa Muerte, which was also always in the background for us, even in work. A lot of the people that I work with were protected by this, uh, this spiritual, spiritual underground practice of Santa Muerte, which a lot of people think it's like a cartel faith or religion. It's always been there. It's a, mar it's, it's a faith of the marginalized, the hopeless, and the lost. Like who better to befriend than death if you're in that environment? So I rediscovered both of those practices. For me, it was like a, a focal point, you know. Uh, one of the uh, hazing rituals they did on us when we were going through training, uh, they did a mock burial on us. They would make us dig our own graves and they would put us in the ground for a night. And if we freaked out, you know, they would, you know, we wouldn't be strong enough mentally. And there was Santa Muerte stuff around it, you know. There was a lady there who was a, was a priestess, Santa Muerte priestess. Uh, and she introduced us to the whole concept of death and life, you know, like as a, like as a warfare thing, like a spiritual warfare thing. And one of the first secrets that you were given when you were unburied, because you were buried overnight, you have to, it's not, it's not deep. It's like just dirt over your box, <laughs> you know, but it's still powerful. Uh, she, she gives you a few secrets when you get dug up. And one of them is you're already dead. Like that's, that's your grave. You're already dead. I remember hearing that one. It's like, huh? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, time's a construct. It's always now. You're you're being born, you're suffering, and you're dying all at the same. It's it's all it's all now. How do you interpret that? Uh, everything is essential. I had to go through the shit that I went through to be where I am now. I had to go through the trauma, the pain, the suffering, the mistakes, the failed marriage, the alcoholism all of that to be able to receive an email from a dude that just got done through his first year of sobriety and saved his marriage and is now trying to send me a package of cookies from his wife because I saved his marriage from him reading my experience and the stuff that I share. It had to be me. I had to go through it. It's always now. I'm the kid going into the recruiting office. I'm the kid breaking into the uh, pool uh, pool area of this cartel house that was taken over at 14, breaking in and being celebrated because I broke a bad lock skateboarding that pool. It's me. I'm me when my mother sh uh, looked at me disappointed that I wasn't my brother showing up to the house. That was me waking up in that cabin going through sobriety like all of them were essential all of them if i change one of them i'm i'm not here just speaking to you you know can you appreciate every experience can you love every experience that's what i'm learning to do now
um, reconnecting with people from that past. You know, Conejo was an example of it, you know. He was an enemy. Yeah. Now he had a need and he called me and I showed up for him. Uh, my daughter is enjoying something that my mother never had. And I think at least on that end that the curse is over. I'm the first alcohol sober member of my family in God knows how many generations. It's crazy, huh? It is mind-blowing. And then that's another curse. And I call them generational curses because that's like, I, it, it's not supernatural. It's just it's the way you think about it. Basically, it's a pattern of behaviors that repeats itself over and over and, I, and it's stopping with me. These epigenetics are real though. Oh yeah. There's a genetic predisposition to different types of coping. Yeah. And different types of trauma can be inherited. It seems like, I don't know, there's the science, I guess, is still yeah. is still out on it. But it, it, intuitively it, it makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, it's there, it's always there, but there's also uh intention and effort. You can you can you can you know we're not a victim to our genetics. Yes we are predisposed and our environment gives us the rest, right? So I was in an environment where alcoholism and drinking alcohol was celebrated to see how much you could drink the other dude under the table, mm -hmm. you know? And I bought into it until you realize how much it's taken from you and the expense of it. And a small little girl tells you not to do it anymore or a man who you respect and who's been through his own process coming out of the other end of it turning back to you who are just about to walk into it tells you probably need to look at sobriety uh yeah i i think uh, and again I'm, i i don't I, I don't i don't play into the victim aspect of it and yeah like i did all this shit and i was horrible and i went through all this process and i'm currently at the end of this hanged man period that I put myself through as far as trying to get better and, and heal from all of that stuff. A few of the lies that were told to me by therapists that I would share and like the, the, because people seeing this who are on the fence about going through it themselves need to know. Uh, there is no getting back to normal. That's a lie. There's no normal. It's a, it's a construct. It's a tooth fairy. It's Santa Claus. It's the Easter bunny. There is no normal. Normal is a fluid concept, changes constantly. There is taking responsibility for yourself, but there's no normal. There's no getting back to normal. So a lot of people torture themselves because they want to get back to normal. Normal is being static, doesn't exist. Life is movement, death is stillness. So people seeking normal usually are walking into a grave. There is no normal. They're, gonna, they're, they're destined for tragedy because things change. Um, another lie that was told to me is you're going to get better. What is better? <laughs> what is better? If you can't explain to yourself what better is, you're walking nowhere. So you need to sit with yourself and define yourself, to yourself what would be better. How can you be better? What can you better in your life? Um, at the end of this process of healing and work you know guy i 
got off alcohol. I went through years of therapy. I fixed relationships. I forgave my father for some things. I forgave myself for a lot of things. I uh, I did all that. No ayahuasca. <laughs> <laughs> uh, none of that shit. Uh, it, some of uh, mushrooms a little bit. They helped. Microdosing helped a little bit. But escaping reality, you know, none of that. No, no, it was it was completely being present, sober, and with myself, honestly. The last lie I was told is, you will find yourself clear all these things and you will be happy. Nah, nah, that's not it. Um, I found myself at 41 celebrating a birthday on my own at a, at a, a house somewhere. In the past, that would have killed me as far as the depression and the sadness of it. You know, I'm alone. I'm alone. 40th birthday. Let me drink myself to, to death or let me cry about it, I guess. I was at peace with myself. I realized that the gift at the end is that. Hey, I love myself. I'm taking vitamins. You know? I'm drinking a shit ton of water. I'm allowing friends to show up for me and I'm showing up for them. Uh, yeah, the damage is there, but I'm wearing it. I'm not hiding it anymore. And I'm trying to do something with it now. I just, uh, I just spent two days here showing a bunch of people how to release themselves from restraints if they get into an abduction scenario or something like that. And one of the things I tell them during this class, and it's it's funny, like the how it all relates to my actual experience in life. All restraints are temporary. This is the first thing I tell them. They're like, what do you mean, man? All restraints are temporary. They're either taken off by yourself, if you learn how, if you take the responsibility, if you practice, if you hone your craft. They're taken off by somebody else because you're broken because you shit your pants, <laughs> because you are, because they own you now and they're not afraid of you. So those restraints come off because you're broken or your body rots away and falls apart around your restraints. And I found a few people burned in fields that still had their handcuffs around their bones. And when they would, when you would move them, their bones would turn to dust around the handcuffs. So those are the three options. Which are you going to take? <laughs> Yeah, and most people take that first one. It's a call. It's a, it's a call to action, and a lot of us that go through shit like that want somebody to come and save us, and we don't realize that all of our prayers that we have, like God, save me, God, save me, God, save me, God. He is saving you. He's giving you a shit ton of life lessons, struggle, pain, tragedy, horror, humanity happiness, moments of healing, struggle to turn you into exactly who you wanted to save you. You, after that, that's who you wanted to save you. Not, it's not going to be anybody else. It's you. It's have, always you. Have you picked up all the pieces now as we sit here today? Yeah. Yeah. You feel content with the work that you've done in your own personal life? I feel like I'm ready for what the next chapter is. Um, my daughter uh, pulled 
a tarot card for me. And again, she's not a card reader. She just, you know, she's just somebody that I, I think is the universe speaking to me directly sometimes. Uh, and I had the hangman card next to my bed every night and every day when I was going through this process of transformation and healing. And it would, in my bedroom, it was always stuck. Like when I would wake up, that's the first thing I would see. When I turned 41, I took it down, finally. And I told my daughter, pull one. You know what she pulled? The Fool. The Fool in Tarot is the beginning. So I'm back at the beginning. So I'm ready to risk again, I guess. So I'm ready to be, a, I'm, ready, I'm ready to make mistakes again. I'm ready to be a fool. Well, that, that's been the process right now. And it's a lonely one. There's nobody here for it. There's no celebration at the end, you know, but it's, but it's still great. No, it's, it's, I, I wouldn't, I couldn't trade it for the world. Do you wish you had gotten sober sooner? Yeah. I missed out on a lot. Yeah. I missed out on a lot. I missed out on being there for people that needed me to deal with grief. I missed out on being there for my ex-wife. I missed out on being there for my daughter. Uh, I missed out on a lot of shit, so I need to make that back. You know? And I have the opportunity because I, I didn't die. I wasn't killed. I survived somehow, so I'm like... I need to do something with it. I got a chance. I got people that uh, people can't don't realize. I I I was eating ramen every day, <laughs> drinking myself to sleep somewhere. I had nothing, and all of a sudden, I find myself in New York with some beautiful friends. Uh, they're walking me over to to eat pizza Joe's in the middle of the night while it's raining. And a bunch of people just got done learning about how to liberate themselves from restraints with me over the weekends. And now I'm here with you. The ride of it has been, you know, you know, you know ayahuasca can go suck it. You know, There's, this, this is the most powerful hallucinogen in the world, life itself. A lot of people struggle with it. A lot of people want to leave it. A lot of people just stay with the pain aspect of it. Yeah, but if you just stay with it, man, you'll come out the other end. It's the greatest trip you'll ever take. <sighs> wild. It's a wild one. Man. It's a wild one. You brought up ayahuasca. People offered it to you. Have they? Yeah, yeah. I've had. I, I had everybody like, hey, you should try this. You should try ayahuasca. You should try this hallucinogen. You should try toad. All of it. You know, I tried some of it and I experimented with some of it. Try, try to help myself out with some of it. Microdosing helped. Out of everything. In what way? It's best antidepressant that I've taken that is outside of pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. uh, it it uh, basically cut down my depressive cycles while I was going through my process. It helped out with that a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, Do you meditate? Yeah, every day. How long? In the morning, I do a physical workout routine that I've been going through for the past you know a few months uh but it's usually in the morning i meditate one hour at least if i can if not 30 minutes 
and at night, another 30 minutes or an hour. That's great. Do you ever go back to Tijuana? Yeah. You're yeah. there frequently? Yeah. It's safe. There's nobody there left alive that gives a shit about any of the shit that happened, you know? And the ones that are there, we realize that all of it was bullshit and we're friends now. Some of them. I'm not a cop anymore. I hate the government in Mexico. Mm -hmm. I was legit betrayed by the whole system and I am disgusted with it. Uh, But I still love the people of Mexico. These are my people. But I'm invested in the U.S. as well because these are also my people because my daughter is American and she's getting to have both of the both of these experiences on uh, of life as far as a culture. I do go back to my, uh, to, to Tijuana. Actually, I started my own podcast and the big reason I did was to bring people to Tijuana. I film it out in Tijuana. So like if you don't if you're afraid to go to Tijuana, I don't want to have a conversation with you. Yeah. <laughs> so and also just to bring attention to the city, I take people guests go down there. I'll take them to get some tacos and experience a little bit of Tijuana, the, the one I know, and then we'll have conversations. Conejo was there. My Lieutenant Colonel Lee Zola was on there, a Navy SEAL guy uh, who runs a program called Heroes for Horses, which is about PTSD and coming back from war. Josh Burnett, legendary MMA guy, was on there as well, and he had his own war and demons he fought. Everybody on there has some sort of... Uh, life journey thing that I've learned from or that I was inspired by that I want to share with people. And that's basically therapy sessions. <laughs> that's what I do on those, uh, with those conversations. And the reason why they're in Tijuana is that this was a place that was instrumental in turning me into who I am now. Mm-hmm. For better, for worse. For better, for worse. And it has its issues. And yes, there's some safety stuff there, but it's a place where most of the people buying new housing are from California and Americans. Mm-hmm. It is a place that's being gentrified right now by this influence. Locals are being, you know, are angry that, that rents are going up so much because it's they're gentrifying it. And I'm trying to bring just people back, I guess, to you, see it as a, as a place, a viable place for them to be, to be able to live in. Do you talk with your brother much? No, not that much. No. Like we're... we're I mean, we're brothers and we're there for each other a lot, but uh, he hasn't gone through this, you know? Mm-hmm. We don't have that perspective because he's okay. He uh, he got married, he has kids, he has a house. He's never had to leave alcohol. It's fine. He can manage it. He's stable. I'm the only idiot that went into this line of work and basically faced it, all of it. And do you talk with your dad much? I didn't for a long while. He was a, we didn't have common ground, you know. I learned alcoholism from him. And I didn't blame him about it, but there was a coldness about it that I just struggled with. When I got sober, he would offer me beers, stuff like that, you know, because culture. So I had some ill will against him, I guess. Um, when When I was a younger, kid uh his his brother beat him unconscious in front of me once uh pushed my mom and i it's like i it's like i felt unsafe you know so i had an issue with that uh, later on in life he told me like he almost had a covid 
when COVID epidemic hit. I did some Jason Borden shit to make a hospital setting at the house in Baja to try and figure out life. You know, me and my brother kept him alive. Uh, he, the doctor told us to say goodbye three times, and he like he survived. You know, he was my dad went did all the vices except smoking. He never smoked. That saved him probably. Wow. Um, I had a moment with him. And my dad is diabetic. He's very, he's older. He's late seventies. So he's not healthy, you know? Uh, after he survived COVID, he started experiencing severe pains. And this time, you know, I, I know about California. I know marijuana now. So I give him some gummies and get him a joint, you know? It's like, take these for your pain. So my dad's high as shit in the garden with me. I said, Dad, can I ask you something? I said, yeah. Why didn't you do anything when my uncle beat you in front of me? I'm like, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to confront him about it. And he's like, oh, <clears throat> I never told you, did I? And I was like, what, Dad? What could you possibly tell me? What could you possibly can tell me? It's going to change anything. When he was a kid... He was friends with a, a dude. And they would have this thing where they would, you know, sneak up on each other and put each other in headlocks when they were kids. Like, hey. And his best friend did that to him once at a bar. And he knocked him back. And he hit his head on the ground. And it lost the use of his motor functions and died later on from the injuries. It was an accident, freak accident. And he became pacifist afterward. Now who do I blame? <laughs> right. Well, you once saw a moment of weakness. Now, it's, now he's a juggernaut. And now it's a moment of strength. <sighs> How and also, And also now it's like, who do I blame? <laughs> who do I blame for my ultra-violent behavior for years because I didn't feel safe? Mm-hmm. And I became so proficient at being, finding safety and arming myself with knowledge and weaponizing this and that, that I'm now hired by the federal government sometimes to train their people on these things. This is the monster that I that create that was created by this insecurity, and now this person that I thought was to blame is releasing that from from him, and I was like, now, well, I'll, it's my responsibility. I, it was me. It was always me. Do you still feel unsafe? No. 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 Not my, now, now I feel responsible. Mm -hmm. I feel responsible for the people that are with me. I feel responsible for my daughter. I feel responsible for my employees. I have a company. We have employees. I feel responsible for them. Uh, we run a we run a program called Fighters Kitchen. There's a Muay Thai gym in Tulum. Uh, run by a, a guy named Eddie Farrell, legendary Thai boxer that I interviewed for the podcast. He's also a wonderful human being, beautiful man. As far as his humanity is great. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, marginalized community kids that go to his gym, and we started a program to feed them. So we give them two meals a day uh, as, as they go through their dream of being fighters. 
that's 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 a, my responsibility now. I have to f keep that going. Mm. So I'm not afraid of anything now other than letting them down. That's my fear. Yeah. You know, do whatever you want to me, but no, that's my responsibility is outside of me. Yeah. The, another thing that's interesting about you just in, in chatting with you is that you wear a lot of, a lot of your stories, you know, like yeah. you, you had mentioned, I think, uh, at a different conversation, you know, you, you mentioned your nose Yeah. and you say, yeah, I, I wear this. This is a sign of, of what I've been through. Yeah. I mean, who am I to tell you how to fight through somebody trying to grab you and put you in a van if I'm not missing teeth mm -hmm. and if I don't have a broken nose. Mm -hmm. you and know? you mentioned your finger as well. Yeah. Uh, fingertips gone. <laughs> what what happened with your hand? Uh, a lot of things. <laughs> uh, several scars. Uh, somebody tried to swing a machete at me. Right there. Um, I tried to write with my left hand at school, and a nun did that to me. <laughs> uh, the, 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 I mean, this this is a roadmap of my life. That fingertip got chopped off by a door because I was stupid, drunk, and I was trying to be responsible for somebody, and my hand got in a door and chopped off my finger. Funny enough, my trigger finger. Oh, wow. So I... So probably somebody doesn't want me to pull a trigger anymore, so it's gone now. <laughs> it's pretty poetic, I, 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 I would say, that, that that specific finger was the one that got chopped off. Um, yeah, so for me, you know, I had a, I spent a long time trying to be normal to hide that. Like, hey, what do you want? Let's <clears throat> be, be normal because I don't want to be treated like a weirdo, you know, differently. Even with the way I speak English, I speak English without an accent because I don't want to be treated differently. Blend in. Blend in. Push down the authenticity. Yeah. Conform. Yeah. I could switch it if you want. I can start speaking like this and start talking about Tijuana and about los tacos que también buenos ahí. I could speak like that, but I, I don't want to be treated differently because I'm, I know I have to earn my space as an American, so I have to figure out how to work on it. But again, it's a process. When I, I used to hide it, but now I realize, oh, this is what makes me me. Yeah, this is what makes me me. I shouldn't hide it. This is this is what makes me me. I wear it. I wear it. Uh, and when I tell people like, hey, this is probably a good idea. You need to get into combatives and then learn how to box, learn how to grapple with people, go into jujitsu. You don't like jujitsu? That means you should probably do it more. You don't like boxing? Yeah, probably do it a lot. Why? If you don't know how to duck, you'll get one of these. Yeah. <laughs> um, I re I had a moment like right at the end of my therapy uh, session, like my process that I had for myself. I went into this bathroom. Um, I was, uh, I think I was somewhere in Texas. Um, I went to this bathroom at a restaurant and it had graffiti all over the bathroom. And somebody wrote, a person of love has to be a destroyer. That is the essence of the universe. In a fucking bathroom. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, it's true. I always had this perception that somebody's good has to be like fucking good, like a saint. Or somebody's bad has to be bad on this end. And no, you have to have both. 
you have to have somebody has to have both so if you love your family if you love your community if you love somebody you have to be able to smash somebody's head in for that person with a rock yeah i forget i think it might have been jordan peterson that had said it but uh nobility requires violence yeah if you're not able to be violent you're not noble yeah you're just weak yep but in order to be a power if 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 you're not hurting someone because you can't there's no there's no victory there, there yeah, there's, there's nothing uh it's not vir- there's no virtue there. yeah there's nothing virtuous no you have to so be able to and then and and keep that shit in check yeah that's what i that's what i teach people I teach them to be capable and responsible for their shit, if I can. Um, the whole aspect of that destroyer aspect of it. That's, that's why I wear these. Uh, basically, two depictions of a La Virgen de Guadalupe and La Santa Muerte, death and life. Uh, usually carry around also these, a gold coin and a silver coin, silver dime and a gold peso. One to bribe the devil and one for the boat, man. <laughs> you know, um, I try and f- I, uh, I figure that in my life I've been either one extreme or the other. Mm-hmm. And again, when you find true peace, you're at peace with all of them. Like your destroyer side or your destroyer period and also your creating period. You have to have both. Like anybody that's worth anything has gone through both mm-hmm. that I've talked to. And when you die, what do you think your legacy will be now? A cluttered, a cluttered grave, hopefully. That's what I, I'm aiming for. Oh, man. I've, I think I've, I've already experienced in life a lot of the things that I would have wanted, you know, to experience after I died. You know, somebody wrote a folk song about me. I didn't pay him. I didn't know him. They just did it automatically, and that, that was a beautiful gift from the universe. And also, as a Mexican, Gerullo, right? um, there's a, there's there's I've I've helped out a bunch of people, and people have reached out and thanked me. In the past, I never answered the phone, I never answered emails, I never responded to DMs that were help that were giving me thanks about shit because I felt so guilty about where all this experience came from and the horrible shit that I had to do. But I'm at peace with both of those sides now. So I think where I would want to end up is just a cluttered grave somewhere with a bunch of random shit left on there. You know, that's that's a good place to end. Well, I'm excited to see the next chapter and the new the new beginning. The fool. Yeah. Everybody needs to get to the fool. That's a good place to be. Ready for the next mistake. Well, Ed, thank you so much for sharing your stories with me. I really appreciate it, brother. Thank you for the space and the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, let's do it again in uh, in a year or so. Ah, oh, yeah. And see and see what progress has been made. The fool's update. I'm down. I'm excited. Thank you. Thank you.